Hello and welcome to the Directors Club. The look over all the films of or every particular director. Um, uh, this is uh, Alan Brad, your hosts on um, uh, for the Directors Club for this particular episode. Now, uh, you guys might be noticing that neither of us is named Jim and wondering why that is. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I'm Al, and I can't quite. Ex- I can't quite give the full explanation. But I. But that's something for Jim to say. I can say for my end. That it kind of got started when I heard about the Directors Club from a mutual friend, and the concept I found you know, really, really intriguing. Because looking over a director's work, the kind of choices he makes on in the films that he does make, is a really interesting way to go and look at a whole series of films and find great like themes and similarities and contrasts. To literally can open up other other uh, film choices and other film possibilities, and so Jim had uh, very generously invited me off for my favorite director Stanley Kubrick, and it was I wish I found a re- revelation. It was just really great, just by virtue of having a conversation. You can just pick up so much more insights into a director who I already spent arguably a heck of a lot of time on anyway, <laughs> and throughout uh, a series of other podcasts. Um, I found had found equally rewarding and enriching through directors like Sidney Lumet and Adam Goyan. So when then Jim generously offered to, for me to take over this particular spot, I found this just a tremendous opportunity. Wanted to also bring in uh, a friend of mine, Brad, who had we had also been kind of been talking about movies through our our, um, our collaboration on the Chicago Film Discussion Group meetup page. Um, and Brad, if you can go and like let let know a little bit about that and and what brings you out to the director's club well sure uh, hello i am brad and uh al i uh have been listening to yours and jim's uh podcasts and enjoying them and when you uh let it be known that this opportunity was here to uh talk about directors and talk about films i really wanted to jump at it because as you know through uh the uh, film discussion group, and uh, we have we do this kind of thing anyway. We we, we are known for kind of having discussions, uh, uh, whether it be uh, about different countries or uh, genres that uh, just go on and on on different tangents. And uh, but here, you know, here's the opportunity to really focus in, as you were saying, on the particular directors and uh, a chance to uh, enlarge the. Uh, community through our listeners which we uh thank you and uh hope you enjoy uh what we have to say and also uh thanks to jim for providing us with this opportunity you're hey. welcome guys oh wow so it's like off in the distance how to the very the ghost of christmas past the, right the ghost of christmas <laughs> encouragement yes. yes we're um uh yes and uh, right totally concurring on on brad's side that like we want, we basically want the directors, we want the, our discussion on directors to just try and be as like, as like open and like, um, and, uh, to, and accessible to all the different possibilities and all the different connections you can make just through like uh, looking at a film, whether up uh, from its entertainment value, its artistic value, the themes that it can go and represent to like, um, uh, to just even like the most, um, uh, broader elements of you know, color, light, movement, music, uh, and performance. Um, and we want to basically just go and present this out for you, and uh, we hope you go get some enjoyment and, and, and insight over just what the things we have to say. And, and please provide us with uh, feedback through uh, comment sections and emails. We absolutely 
want to hear about uh, what you want to hear about, uh, what you think the direction of the direction of the discussion, and you know, maybe directors you'd like to uh, hear discussed in the future. Mm-hmm. And now uh, joining us to help, like. Uh uh, take give uh, Danny Boyle a look is um, uh, Andrew James out from the um, Row Three uh, Cinecast. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm I'm pretty excited to be part of the uh, what do you call it? I guess the inauguration, the the handoff of power here at the Directors Club podcast. <laughs> I I'm excited about this. May, may it be a much smoother inauguration. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and what 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 brings you to like sparks your interest in in Danny Boyle in a kind of a general way before we get start getting into his filmography in earnest? Sure. Um, in kind of a general way, I guess I would say <clears throat> Danny Boyle is one of these directors. Uh, well, first of all, I, I should say I had to fight for the guest appearance on this show with my co-host at the Cinecast because. Both of us are big Danny Boyle fans. We always get into long, um, probably twice a year we talk about Sunshine or have the 28 Days Later discussion. Um, so we're, we've always just been big fans, and every time something is released, I just get excited. So for me, I think what it kind of boils down to is overall, I think Danny Boyle takes really simple stories Um, Now, I understand he didn't write them all necessarily, but he chooses these projects and almost every single one with maybe the exception of like A Life Less Ordinary or something, you can kind of boil down the synopsis into about a sentence, maybe two sentences. They're all super simple. And on paper, that synopsis is always kind of like, eh, that doesn't sound too exciting. And then you go see the thing and you're just blown away i you're with just being surprised that it was able to be pulled off and then how like epic and beautiful and interesting um that little simple story was made out to be so for me that's i think that's what it is with Boyle is kind of he always surprises me every time i go see something that he's done hmm Right there, there is. He's not one of these directors that you know. Kind of, we often talk about when we uh, auteur directors who have these themes that uh, repeat uh, mm-hmm. movie throughout movie, like like a Kubrick or someone like that. But uh, he is an amazingly skilled director and, and technician, and he has always brings this uh, energy to each project. But each project is so distinctive and different. Uh, usually depending on uh, who the writer is. Right. Yes. And Brad, uh, Brad Gay uh, had told me a really interesting facet that, uh, that like made Boyle singularly unique to me in terms of like directors. As we, as you go, as we go through, as we went through his filmography, we came across that like he, he's pretty good at putting supplemental materials and to almost every single one of his, we found that to almost every single one of his, um, uh, his releases, he has had a commentary track with the writer, which is pretty unheard of for like for for commentary tracks. And he sometimes asks them to do cameos, like in uh, Shallow Grave. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And and so that level of see, I think that level of attention to to a writer's concerns is pretty unique in 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 um in the film industry. And so and and so it makes and it makes me really interested to look over his sequence of films. And just see how, how perhaps like his greatest value or one of his greatest values of a director is, as, as you said, Andrew, just how he can take a concept, uh, simple or brought in from another totally different person 
and enhance it to make something unique and memorable. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The summer's gone and all the leaves are falling. Tis you, tis you must go and I must buy. I suppose we'll get into the, I guess, the, the auteur theory with Danny Boyle because, I mean, he is and he isn't. I feel like you said I, he has all of these different sort of styles. Um, you, If you sit down in front of a Danny Boyle film and you don't know it's a Danny Boyle film, you might not figure it out right away you might not be able to pick it out but if you know it going in every single one of his movies does have well almost all of them does have that i don't know i guess boil flair that there's that certain type of frenetic editing that he'll use once in a while or certain visual cues that he uses a lot so there is an auteurness there it's just that on on a broader scope like you couldn't get any further from train spotting to 20 days later to sunshine at least like visually it's they're completely at odds so it's but if you pick out little bits here and there you'll notice a ton of similarities Mm -hmm. yeah and and so one uh uh one uh good example of like where and it seemed where he some of his sensibilities seemed to come out in full force had been his first movie uh shallow grave like a a take of like three three um uh flatmates and who who have like to have fun in um uh tormenting people uh who are trying to rent a room then they rent a room to the um uh to the wrong guy who ends up uh uh who ends up uh putting them in a precarious situation that they kind of make uh they kind of end up making worse through <laughs> through through their own through their own actions um, and so it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a little bit of a dark Hitchcockian type of, type of comedy, but already that was kind of, um, it was, a uh, already a pretty interesting debut. Like, um, one, uh, some of the things that came across for me is just that the design of it was so, so like, um, uh, such a great colorful viewpoint, like the, like the, um, like the the rooms are put up in these all these really like interesting hues in a way it could almost be like the mask of the red death of uh of uh, of Hitchcock of Hitchcock crime and then also the way how the camera is able just roaming around uh, uh looking at the uh, the different levels of the of the main apartment that's the focus of that's the focus of the story and then and then just this kind of level of roguish charm <laughs> delivered but like uh, no, no, for no better embodied than in uh, like Ewan McGregor, to which I think is like his uh, film debut. Oh, is it? I didn't notice that. It, I... It's certainly the first film I was aware of him in, and he his charisma is a great part of uh, the appeal of a lot of the early Danny Boyle films, and I think this one in in particular because he does really come off the come off the screen and. Uh, um, Christopher Eccleston uh, also is excellent in a little bit of the darker role, and although at the time uh, Carrie Fox, who's the uh, the female lead, was actually the most known of uh, of the three actors, <laughs> uh, 
But the, the, you were saying, Andrew, about the uh, kind of the visual uh, consistency of Boyle, and, and it's he starts right off the bat because the first thing we see in this film is is not uh, the characters, not even the apartment. It's this uh, very fast zooming uh, travel shot down the street to get us to the apartment. Uh, so already the film. Uh, as soon as it begins, it's announcing itself as uh, a high-energy project. Yeah, and it's funny, Al, you mentioned, uh, I think it was Al that mentioned Kubrick as his favorite director. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Me too. And I, I know we'll probably bring up Clockwork Orange later in this podcast too, but this movie reminded me a lot of a Clockwork Orange, actually. it's The opening credits are that big, bright red it's not the opening credits. It's it's actually I think it's the whatever the studio was, but still, it's just right. a full red screen with big bold white letters. Um, it felt like the opening credits, and then I thought one of the opening shots. It might not be the very opening shots, but it's damn close. It's a close up of um, Eccleston's eye, Christopher Eccleston's eye, right. and then it sort of zooms out. Right. Um, Akin to like Alex DeLarge's intro, right? Right, exactly. And Ewan McGregor's character's name in this movie is Alex. And he's a very similar, he's just out to cause trouble. Um, You know, the way they treat other people as though like they're the only ones on the planet that matter. They just treat other people like crap just for fun. I got a really strong Clockwork Orange, like just in terms of story and style, just clear inspiration from him and um i just thought that was awesome but then on the other hand the hitchcock uh sort of uh analogy is spot on as well i think the poster kind of looks like vertigo or looks like a spot like a hitchcock type of thriller um so yeah it's it's very much like this is the debut of danny Danny Boyle, and you can see a lot of his inspirations coming together right at the right at the front. Why not? Right? Why not start your movie or your start your career with things you know and things you are inspired by? This is a perfect example to find your footing. Uh, yeah, if you um, uh, if you start off with if you want to start off with directors that have influenced you, you can you can get the few to a few that are higher than Hitchcock and Kubrick. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, the film also comes at an interesting place. Um, uh, just timing wise, because uh, it's the mid '90s, it's 1994, and the uh, American independent movement had already uh, been out full swing with uh, directors like uh, Quentin Tarantino and uh, Kevin Smith, and uh, all these low budget uh, indie films. And uh, Boyle, who had uh, worked a lot in uh, British television, uh, was kind of announcing the British uh, joining of this uh, independent movement, and. Uh, you really couldn't uh, ask for uh, a better start than shallow grave. Mm, like the, and, and actually now that I, now that I'm re- remembering a little bit more of the uh, more of the film, the the one one film that like actually has a really interesting connection to it to me is that like as Brad as you were saying when they has when he's driving around through London like he has that pulsing like um, uh, techno dance track which is like becoming like maybe uh, which. Uh, a feature which Boyle will put in so many of his films, he may be like the techno Scorsese at this point. But, um, but 
also, but when the movie is playing proper, there's a particularly kind of high kind of pitched piano theme going on, which combined with the kind of the very skulldudgery that's going on and with the really bright use of color in certain sequences, it reminded me of nothing more than Suspiria, Dario Argento mm. Suspiria, mm. you know, and yep. the, the way that like, and, and I think the movie really kind of in a, in a British way, like, does, Work on that kind of level of of making uh, making dirty deeds seem like even dirtier by how bright and lurid the color schemes are in a per- in a particular scene. Mm-hmm. Well, visually, uh, one of the most uh, exciting parts to me is uh, a little later on in the film when uh, Eccleston's character is holed up uh, in the attic and begins so he could uh, now there friendship is strained and uh, as is the trust to uh, drill holes in the ceiling and that uh, creates a few scenes where uh, the light is shining up uh, through the uh, from the ceiling through the attic and the uh, the effect is very eerie and very cool Brian that guy is uh, the cinematographer Brian Tufano should get major credit for that because that the way those lights are just crisscrossing in all sorts of directions as if like <laughs> it's almost like trapping either trapping Eccleston's character or making him like a kind of web kind of manipulator. There's a, a, a little bit of like a kind of a, kind of a weird sort of voyeurism going on halfway through involving his character as yeah. he uses his vantage points to like, um, uh, to make some pretty, uh, like, uh, uh make some observations upon his uh, fellow, uh, his fellow roommates. Yeah. I mean, and not only does it just look cool, but it creates like this great location for things to happen. You know, like when the the bad guys go up there and there's like, he kind of hij- um you know, he just kind of hijacks them or whatever. Um, it just makes the the apartment is what it is. It's just an apartment, and then you go up there, and all of a sudden, it's a whole new world that we're in, and different things can happen. And I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Did I mean all that said? Like, what do you guys think of the movie as a whole? Do you like love it? Because um, I think it's. It's a really solid, solid film. I'm n- I'm never blown away by it. I think it's it feels like m- maybe not a short story, but like a 45 minute, 50 minute film, kind of stretched into 90 minutes. Like I feel like there's a lot of stuff in it that's I, I would I don't know if I'd say needless necessarily, but there is a lot of downtime and stuff that just feels like they're really trying to stretch it to get it to feature length. But maybe that's just me. I mean, I like Shellgrave. Don't get me wrong. I, I thought it was just solid and everything. But, I mean, it feels kind of like a, a really good debut film. It's not going to get any Oscars. It's not going to um, like really wow anybody. That I mean, maybe in 90, 1994 it probably did. But now in 2016, I just rewatched it and went, yeah, that was that was all right. I didn't. It didn't blow me away, though. I mean, right. These are guys who, you know, again, will will go on to do Slumdog Millionaire and, uh, uh, you know, from all all these different uh, higher budget films. And and I agree with you that uh, Shallow Grave is not is not the peak, but as a low budget debut, uh, and that's the context I'm looking at. It, it, it's one that I think you know ranks with uh, with the Coen's debut. Um, oh, that's a good just, call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially its take on uh, its take on right and wrong has kind of reaches doesn't reaches blood simple's heights and depths, but 
that same base level of amorality seems to kind of be there. Right. Um, Again, it's, it's kind of an announcement ra- rather than the, de- the destination. Yes. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about Danny Boyle if he stopped after Shallow Grave, but, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. this is him just getting started. That's, uh, yes, that's, yes, that's right. Like, it's, uh, my, I mean, my take on, my take on Shallow Grave is that if you are, um, um, if, if you, uh, pick up on Boyle through some of his films that are more well known, it's very well worth a look because you will see the origins of like, uh, as you, as like you brought up, Andrew, like these, the elements that he does to go and enhance a film, to give it some, to give it some kineticism and some, and some velocity. And, um, is, it is present, like his, his, his roving camera, the, uh, the interesting low, incredibly low angle choices he uses, the way he moves, in around and in some cases through the house <laughs> mm-hmm. um uh and and the, and in the particularly kind of roguish attitude that he has towards uh towards his characters like <laughs> when you're when you brought up uh when you brought up about his um uh clockwork orange uh, uh, tendencies like that's one of my one of my favorite lines that boils in a boil movie comes from when um uh, when alex goes and points out to um uh, uh to the carrie fox character i was like Oh, what do you, what are you so mad about killing? You're a doctor. You've killed lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and also, like, one other thing to keep in mind for Boyle as we, as, as we get to move on is that his attention, his attention to detail, like, the fact that he chooses Eccleston in an upside down position in several moments, like, leads, including from his, uh, perch in the, uh, roof, t- uh, in the, uh, loft area. And, um, one of my favorites is that one of the, uh, bad guys in the movie does not really want to get involved in any of the dirty work. So he's constantly brushing his hands <laughs> against his jacket after some horrible, <laughs> some horrible thing he's done. <laughs> you know, the, the thriller aspects of the film are really informed by the characters, which I think is, uh, always a really good place to be for, for movies like this. And, uh, so you, you have these three characters that have all found a suit, suitcase full of, uh, of money. Um, and, you know, how are they going to react? And, and you have, and, and they, again, I think the arc of the film is they start out as the best of friends. They, they view all outsiders with suspicion, but they view each other, uh, with affection. And, uh, then as the money, uh, comes into their lives, they start to act differently towards each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, you have, uh, Ewan McGregor kind of being the more devil may care character, um, and, uh, looking at, uh, looking at optimistically, what are the possibilities? And Christopher Eccleston, uh, is more suspicious, is more cautious. And, uh, you see as his character becomes darker, uh, you, you know, the motivations are clear. It's, it's a, the, it's really well motivated and, uh, also dealing in, in their, their relationship, uh, with, uh, Carrie Fox's, uh, character and, uh, the potential of uh, romance there. Yeah, and the um, and I, I do concur with you, Andrew, a little in that it does meander a little bit. There's a kind, it, it kind of gets to like a threatening point and then gets past it and then kind of keeps going a little bit longer than maybe it should have. But then it kind of does lead to it does lead to a really nice moment where it actually the characters make great use of the setting. Like it's a really violent, but then very much. Um, Involved with like the furniture in a very not <laughs> the furniture is used as part of a battle in a very very unique way, and and then like uh like when Bra- as Brad brings up on like the suitcase full of uh 
the suitcase full of money, I think maybe like is like in the same way that maybe Hitchcock like had was um you know thrown in jail by the police and had the mistrust of police from then on. The suitcase full of money may have been something that Boyle had encountered because it also features prominently in his next movie, the which you could say is his breakout his breakout hit, um uh, uh Trade Spotting, uh the based off an Ir- Irvin Welsh um, novel about um about uh, junkies in Scotland and um. And the various like um, adventures uh, uh, that uh, that befall them, and then uh, and then just the events that they go through, just uh, maintaining a high, trying to get off the high, uh, trying to go and deal with normal life, which resumes them to getting high, and um, and um, and through that, like I, in my in, to me, like Boyle manages to create these really really distinct characters <laughs> characters that uh seem to uh, be uh, up for up for a, I- interest in a sequel that's uh, com- coming up soon choose life choose a job choose a career choose a family choose a fucking big television choose washing machines cars compact displays and electrical tin openers i'm a little bit worried about the sequel for train spotting apparently the the novel's great um, it's one of these things where, well, I didn't really ask for a sequel, but you know what? Sure, give it to me. I, I'm interested to see where these guys are 30 years later. Um, yeah, Train Spotting. I remember, so what, what year is this? 96. Yeah, it was my second year of college. This is one of those movies, along with like Bad Lieutenant and maybe like Reservoir Dogs, that everybody had a poster on their wall of these guys. Even if they haven't seen the movie, it's the cool thing to have the train spotting poster on your wall. And I think it's what's kind of interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about this movie, but one thing is um, the way it was marketed and the way it's perceived um, as being so like cool and fast and fun and funny. But if you sit down and watch the thing, it is all those things, but it's also really sick and I, I don't mean sick, like, it's just like, it makes you feel kind of sick. It's very icky. It's very serious. Um, really bad things happen. I mean, I kind of equate it to like a glamorized version of Requiem for a Dream, kind of. Like, it just, it's it's weird how the popular culture has embraced train spotting, at least in my memory, as this fun, glitzy, really cool thing, but it's actually totally full of depravity and horrible things and a light a lesson to everybody right it's yeah it makes you wonder if like the if it makes you wonder if the sequel really was attempting to be like you know faithful to these characters it should kind of like right be a a 10 minute slow pan across their gravestones right i mean exactly (laughs) yeah i kind of want it to be left where it was but hey let's give it a go well you know there's nothing like uh starting a brand new podcast by getting into trouble which is uh, what I'm about to do because, uh, you know, sometimes subjectivity uh, just comes into it when uh, talking films. And personally, I have a little bit of a, uh, a not great reaction to films about junkies acting out. That's mm-hmm. just kind of a taste thing for me. I watch Train Spotting and I recognize that that same skill is there. Uh, there's, uh, some amazing, uh, sequences visually and, uh, use of the soundtrack. But, uh, at, at the end of the day, this is a film I 
don't really find myself very uh, attracted to. It's, uh, uh, you know, again, Ewan McGregor is really, you know, he, you know, he's really holds it t- together well, but a- a- I still find myself asking as I'm watching this, well, okay, heroin's bad. We're seeing the results of that, but uh, what more is there to there? And obviously I'm in the extreme minority on this because so many have found what more there is to there. Hmm. Uh, like, uh, um, yeah, there is, um, the movie's doing, the movie's doing quite a bit, I mean, quite a bit more than just pointing out, like, in fact, I actually think it's quite a bit more robust in its viewpoint of people than Requiem for a Dream, which, while I think is a spectacular movie, is a spectacular movie that basically gives you a very stern lesson upon, you know, upon drugs are bad. Like, it, like, to me, Trainspotting does, Trainspotting does show the really, really horrible effects on, of, of, of heroin abuse, but then also shows kind of the reason why, like the, like when you, when they're out in the Scottish countryside after they have spotted their, um, first train, then, and, uh, uh Renton, uh, Ewan McGregor's character has this really great rant upon, what are you, what are you bothering looking at this countryside? Scotland's a shite country. We, you know, uh, like some people hate the British, but I don't hate them. Sure, they're wankers, but we got colonized by wankers. Uh We couldn't even get colonized by a real country. (laughs) And it's, well, and, and honestly, Boyle does a really nice tightrope in, in a lot of train spotting in that, like, it's funny. It's a funny, it's a funny thing to say, but it does in, it does point out why he, you know, that kind of environment, like why he would want to go and, uh, why you would want to go and escape from it, you know, and that and that really great visual of when he had the overdose, where he's sinking into this carpet-lined coffin, and as from the above-ground view, which is a, uh, uh, which by the way is a view that like Boyle had already shown a little in evidence in a Shallow Grave, but he uses it to masterful effect here. Mm-hmm. Um, just gives you the sense that it's it's not a matter of. It's not a matter of, say, Wolf of Wall Street, where it's like, um, where it's ecstatic, uh, you know, where it's ecstatic, you know, joyful, like, just, uh, uh, cr- just craziness. Though craziness is there. It's more lines of comfort, sedateness, a calmness. And I think the movie, I think the movie does, does bring, bring that out. I mean, uh, Andrew, what's, what's your kind of impressions upon, like, train spotting and the, you know, value of watching junkies behave the way they do? Yeah, I mean, I agree, even though I, I, I sometimes question the morals of the movie. I do find enjoyment. I do laugh at things. I do think it's funny. Like, it's got this sort of, you know, kind of feels like Snatch in a way, like mm-hmm. a Guy Ritchie film. It's got a little bit of Edgar Wright in there, all before these guys, of course. Right. Um, And... I think, I mean, another lesson besides just drugs are bad, it's sort of about relationships, too. And you kind of become, it's like, it's like they're all involved in an abusive relationship and won't get out of it. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know if I can draw any parallels or anything, but that's kind of what I feel like. They're just, they're con- all of them are sucked into this life by each other. I feel like. Spud would want to get out of this and and go be somebody good, but because he's surrounded by these other guys that are so cool, he's just sucked into their world. Renton, Ewan McGregor, wants to get out, but these are his friends, and it's inevitable that these guys are gonna you know suck him back down. And he stays friends with them even when they you know sell his TV, yeah, or <laughs> you know do all these horrible things. Yeah. I feel like he, it's 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 kind of an allegory to. 
being in an abusive relationship. You hear about this all the time. These people who are in physically abusive relationships and don't get out, don't report it. You know, they're just stuck there. Um, and you, it kind of, you scratch your head and are baffled, but here, here it is on screen kind of in a different context. Mm-hmm. So I, I pull that out of it too. But um, I don't know. The, I think what drew people, especially maybe teenagers and college kids and people in their 20s to this thing was how um, kind of dirty it felt, like subversive. Like you felt like you did when you were a little kid and stuck down into your parents' basement or whatever in the middle of the night and watched Eddie Murphy Raw or something. Like right. this was this was a 20-something version of that. You're crawling into a toilet full of poo um, yeah. which happens again later in this podcast, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and all of the drug stuff and you're living in this world that you never, or most of us would never see or be a part of. Um, and it's fun to be there. It's fun sitting on that hill and watching these guys like peg off people with a BB gun in the park. Yeah. It, um, it's funny watching him, you know, be constipated and have to take a shit. It's fun <laughs> to watch it's almost fun to watch him suffer, to be honest. Like, uh, the whole scene where his parents finally make him quit cold turkey. It's not funny, but it's kind of fun to watch. And um, you got dead babies crawling on the ceiling. Like, yeah. it's really icky and weird. And I see why people just, if for no other reason, was like, what am I watching here? I've never seen shit like this before. You, you know, um, I have heard the criticism that... Uh the film glamorizes drug use, which I, I don't think it does. I think uh, it really does show the darker side. You mentioned uh, the, the, the the dead baby, which both in its initial appearance and uh, in its dream appearance uh, are almost uh, the most uh, memorable images uh, yeah. of the film. So I, I, do, I don't think it, it, it's glamorizing at all. Um, yeah. Now, the writer here, uh, John Hodges, the, or the screenplay, uh, same fellow who uh, did Shallow Grave. And I think, uh, if, you know, if, at least in these two movies, we do have this commonality of these uh, friendships that are stronger than uh, usually portrayed in films. And uh, it is really interesting, especially keeping in mind that a sequel is about to come out, how um, how they are saying that uh, that this group of people, you know, will stick together, you know, even through the most dire of circumstances. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, that dynamic, like, obviously a lot of people find those, those dynamic people kind of work. And, and I do see that to a point. Uh, to me, be- uh, to me, uh, uh, Robert Carlyle's Begbie kind of uh, fails the uh, f- what uh, what I call like the uh, fool's money paradox, which is that like as Benjamin Franklin said, a fool and his money are soon parted. To which I was always wondering, well, how do you get the money in the first place? <laughs> I look at I look at Begbie and I'm like, no way are these guys gonna hang with this dude if for no other reason that he <laughs> he hates he hates the fact that they're all junkies, you know. Right. I I cannot buy into the fact that he would, that they would that they would hang with him for one moment. But the other three, I think, in, in their own way, they have their own. I mean, I think they have their own reasons for ironic uh, for uh, they have their own reasons for the taking for why they take heroin to deal with things. Like Sick Boy is all about like the kind of the the what does it mean to be Scottish in a persona way? How he's always quoting like uh, Sean uh, doing Sean Connery, and um and Spud is kind of in the the most childlike one. Like he's just like he just kind of like wants to belong, and Renton is just kind of in the um. 
uh, the like the the main character from the J.D. Salinger book, Catcher in the Rye. He's like he's like kind of looking for something, but respecting nothing. I mean, and Andrew, to what you to your point about like what brings what made it so enchanting for teenagers? I think kind of it's encapsulated on that little monologue that happens at the beginning as they're running away from the running away from the police. The thing about like, oh, get a car, get a job, mm-hmm. get a wife, be a, be a, you know, play soccer on weekends and choose this, choose that, choose this. And then he, and then he says, I'm not, well, I'm not going to choose. And what are the reasons? What reasons do you have if you have, do you need if you have heroin? Have heroin, mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, what, for a moment there, it's almost the Tyler Durden speech from Fight Club. And then it kind of takes this quick left-hand turn and just says drugs. right. Right. Yeah. It's and right. And I think for the almost a similar for the similar reasons, it's the idea of like just a consumer thing, the idea of like of like a whole society that other people literally, you know, buy into. And then like you make your decision by going against doing things by literally lying down on <laughs> lying down on society in a way. Right. Right. There's the scene where uh, the spud character goes to um goes to get a job he he goes to do an interview and he takes a bunch of speed or coke or whatever before he goes and and there's a case where i i would i think some people would say it's glamorizing drugs because it's funny but no i think it's funny and hopefully somebody in their teens or 20s would look at this and go okay this is not the way to go into a job interview yeah (laughs) but it's fun it's funny i'm you're laughing all the way through that yeah, um, right. I mean, it's yeah. cast really well. I, the, these actors absolutely um, bring that kind of uh, uh, entertainment. Entertainment there, they, they uh, inhabit it. Yeah. That's for sure. And and for for how well I how ba- how badly I think Begbie fits as part of that squad. Good lord, does Robert Carlyle inhabit him? Like he is. He is like uh, like he's a British Klaus Kinski almost. <laughs> like in, in yeah. how and <laughs> yeah. how he can just like. Be just a threat that turns on in an instant. Total commitment. <laughs> exactly. Totally commitment to total, to a total like lack of control, you know? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, right. It's just, I think the movie has so many different ways where it just like, where it just sticks it to, uh, just sticks it to quote unquote the man in, in like every like stuff from like, from like soccer, from the soccer playing, the bar hopping, to dance clubbing, to like, to like literally the American Pie scenario where everyone has uh, everyone has sex and it's all kind of wrong in very very different ways <laughs> and a hell of a soundtrack. Well, yes, <laughs> yes. Like that's this is kind of maybe his Mean Streets, right? The one where he uses his uh, the one where he uses the soundtrack to perfect perfect effect to mm-hmm. fit the mood on the scene. The mm-hmm. great intro for a lust for life. Great con- great conclusion with that wonderful born slippy uh, uh, track for for Underworld. Yeah, I mean, I guess I mentioned the poster on everybody's walls. Also, everybody had that CD in their stack too. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's. I mean, it's kind of like. I mean, I think it was just a really. I, I think it captivates in that kind of similar way that 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 Tarantino did the idea of like the idea that you're like that you have this like de- that you have a devil may care attitude that's given just a a a a, a com- completely like full level of presentation for characters who are like maybe calling them quote unquote bad boys is a little is a little simplistic but may- but I don't know maybe it's a matter maybe it is a matter just the not that's just at the first surface level nonconformity you know mhm yeah i mean I don't. I don't think I would feel unsafe around these guys now, outside of maybe a bar fight or something. But I don't think 
like they're dangerous or you know they're they're going to kill anybody or anything like that. They are very uh I guess narcissistic maybe. I don't know if that's the word, but very about themselves, mm-hmm. you know. I don't think they're extremely external. So calling them bad boys, they're certainly not good, but I would never feel unsafe around these guys. They're a very interesting tight-knit crew. Um I don't know where I'm going with this, but that just occurred to me. Like, I, I never feel like they're villains. Right. They're you not know? malevolent. Or, not even not even yeah. Begbie's malevolent. He's out of control, but... Yeah. He, he wants not... to get in some bar fights, so maybe you would feel... Like, he does just start fighting that guy in the yeah. bar out of the blue. Mm. There's Later a really... in the movie, you know, I guess they do attack that guy in the bathroom, too. But, I don't know. Still, <laughs> I never felt like they were this dangerous gang um, that's going around really hurting people other people they were and, just and, kind of about themselves and scoring right and also the fact that they uh or at least renton uh wants to get off the heroin so mm-hmm. uh you see you have various sequences where he's uh, on and off the wagon and uh trying to recover so it's not like uh he's like yes this is this this is the best this is the life i mm-hmm. want to lead you do see that uh that 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 even he sees there's there's something wrong with it and uh when his uh when his friend uh who was initially not on heroin uh ends up ODing uh you know you see he's really affected by that yeah but then at the but then at the same time they have no problem say going to an old folks home and uh, just taking their just walking up and taking their TV cuz hey they need the money for well, their drugs right it goes back to the heroin and and you know it's it's, it's the <laughs> yeah. idea that you know when you are on the heroin you're going to you know bad things are going to happen and you're going to do bad things whether you're you know uh, a nice guy or not <laughs> yes yes yeah. That, uh, yeah that's right it's like um, I, I find that Boyle like like maybe this is a function of Hodges uh, Hodges like uh, writing up from Shallow Grave and and Trainspotting, but it did seem to like Boyle like from the get go has this pretty has this interesting view of right and wrong, which is kind of it's not nihilistic and it's not but it's not like like Scorsese Catholic like oh my God this person will be damned for their actions. It's kind of like the ending of Trainspotting is is. Uh, really, really interesting as, as like, as, as like Renton kind of repeats his choosing thing. Well, there might then, be a more Catholic movie coming up, but there uh, could, in this there case, could, for there, sure. There yeah. could be, right? But, but, right. But it looks at it, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to quite kind of a nuance, but I think it's a way the, uh, I think Boyle has a way of threading the needle of on what, what it means to do right and wrong, which may inform like a, which may like inform a couple of, uh, a couple of his, uh, other films. Um, uh, 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 speaking of which, I mean, uh, it might be time to get into, um, a film of his that might be all wrong, a, uh, <laughs> li- a, uh, a, uh, Life Less Ordinary. Um, yes, yeah, go ahead, a Brad. A Life Less Ordinary is, uh, take it away, Brad. Film, yeah, I don't think a lot of, uh, people, uh, fans of Boyle love this film. I might, uh, not hate it, though, as much as it deserves to be because, uh, well, first of all, I'll just describe a little bit about the movie. It's got uh, what can charitably call, be called a bit of a goofy plot. It's uh, angels in heaven have uh, been told by the uh, the higher-ups that they can only uh, remain in heaven if uh, they ensure that this particular couple, a uh, rich woman played by Cameron Diaz, and a uh, 
a working class lad played by uh, Ewan McGregor, who for some reason looks like he's straight out of uh, late 60s uh, <laughs> swinging London. Uh, they now have to fall in love. So we have this uh, opposite to track scenario that includes uh, heavenly uh, intervention by uh, Holly Hunter and Delroy Lindo as uh, very strange uh, angels. Weirdest uh, reboot of It's a Wonderful Life ever. Well, it, it's a reboot of something, and unfortunately, one of my uh, <laughs> one of my obsessions is the early 80s, so I happen to have That's seen a far, far worse film uh, called uh, Two of a Kind, which was the uh, reunion of John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John uh, after Grease. Uh, don't watch it, it's terrible, but it actually shares the plot of this movie oh really okay <laughs> the plot got the plot got passed around <laughs> yeah but, um, but, but here's the thing is that as dopey as the film is i still it's it was still the the cast and and the uh the, perf the performances didn't seem to know how dopey it was it was really engaging uh, as not only on an acting level, not on any other level. Uh, I felt like Ewan McGregor, even given this material, was like, okay, we're going to go for it. Let's, let's try to make this work. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Holly Hunter has, ha has probably the most bizarre role as, uh, as an angel who, who's acting so strange on earth. And I think, what I think she was going for was that because she has a human body, she's now experiencing sexuality at all times. And so she <laughs> writhes around very strangely, no matter what the circumstances. <laughs> some some weird collaboration between her crash character yeah. and uh, some of the angel and some of the angels from the Wim Wenders film. <laughs> and Mrs. Incredible. Well, there <laughs> the you go. Yes. She kinda, yeah, contorts herself. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Andrew, did you like the uh, the uh, use of like uh, drugs from in the writer's booth for this uh, movie? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I wasn't as big of a fan of this one now on this watch. It was okay. Like, I didn't dislike it. And like you guys said, I'm all about Delroy Lindo um, and uh, Holly Hunter. Um, and Danny Boyle's direction is pretty great. Like, I like a lot of the style. I felt, though, like this was... It felt like the quintessential 90s film. Hmm. And that made it, to me, feel a little stale. Um, like, yeah, I guess I see kind of what you're going for here, but it feels like this post pulp fiction trying to be kind of weird and, and stylistically cool all to say. So it felt to me, what I put on my letterbox was that it felt stale and pretentious kind of at the same time. Huh. Um, I, but I'm engaged with it because like you said, the performances are really fun. Um, and it's just kind of all over the place, you know. It's it, it with the super white heaven, and then you come down to earth, um, and Ewan McGregor is giving it his all. Uh, he's very charming and very fun to watch, and uh, so I mean, it's it's worth taking a look at. But I just I was like, I feel like this is kind of old hat and very very much lesser Danny Boyle. Well, what we see is Danny Boyle now genre hopping. So, yeah. you know, he starts out with a thriller, moves into uh, a drug film, and now it's basically a romantic comedy um, with supernatural elements. But I, I think he was trying to show that he could do uh, 
do different things. And uh, in a way he can, because I, th- I think the, the way this movie doesn't work is in, is in the script uh, and in the story uh, aspects of it. But when it comes to the direction, it, it's still assured and makes it, even though not a great movie, uh, not an unwatchable one either. Hmm. Right. I, I guess what I, yeah, when I said I kind of like the direction, what I meant is I, I do feel like it's got energy and pizzazz. There's that whole like show tune scene in the middle at the bar. Right. Like stuff like that. Um, it's got heart. Like nobody's phoning it in, including Boyle. Um, but it doesn't feel like Boyle had control almost. It felt like the movie was kind of running itself. Um, mm. it's the least auteur. I, 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 I don't know. It's, it's hard to put a finger on, to be honest, but it just, it, nothing is super grabbing me at any point. The, it makes me, I mean, when I was looking at the film, I was like, like Brad said is genre hopping. I was just yeah. like, I don't want to see anything like in this genre. <laughs> I have not seen this kind this whole deal of angels helping angels helping these or, or, or this couple get together, but they have their own problems is like, it was a little, one step too mystical for me. If they were ghosts, <laughs> would that have helped? If they were, if they were ghosts, would that have, if they, if they were invisible and inaudible, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Um, no, it's, it's, I, I was looking at the, uh, for me, I had a really negative reaction to this film because I was, because, yeah, like, I completely agree with, uh, I completely agree with you guys that, like, nobody is, nobody is just like, just like winging it. They're all very dedicated to that, to, trying to present this material <laughs> in the best way they can. It's just that when I'm looking at it, it's like, I just ask myself, why? What is, what on earth was here that people thought to go and give some pizzazz on, on their, on the, on their direction or, or really commit on their performance? Uh, the one exception I would give is that, is that, is Cameron Diaz, who kind of, you know, God bless her, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, she jumps in on every performance, uh, full, full force, you know, whether it's a counselor or, or something about Mary. It's, if they ask her to do something, she will go wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly into that. <laughs> Very bad things. Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm just imagine what would be, it would be great if she could act too. I mean, that would be amazing. Um, uh, but, but in terms of like, uh, now in terms of what Brad was actually saying about control, I think control, is a real his and especially Boyle's control plays a really interesting influence in his upcoming in this movie that he made after this, uh, The Beach, based off a uh, not a novel by uh, Alex Garland. Um, uh, the Beach is a a wayward backpacker played by by Leonardo DiCaprio who um, who comes across a map to a a magical uh, beach um, uh, in the in the Pacific, uh, where he meets a very he, a very reclusive community and brings along a um, a a French couple over from the trip, and it looks over like uh, at this uh, community which has a uh, tenuous kind of peace with the massive amounts of uh, uh, canna- uh, cannabis that's being guarded um, on, on this island. And, and, um, where the main character, Richard, played by DiCaprio, uh, experiences some, uh, tensions both within and with, and without the group. Um, uh, Brad, how'd you, how'd you like what DiCaprio could do to Danny Boyle? <laughs> well, there's a little, uh, behind the scenes drama that I found out after watching the film that uh, I think informs it a bit, which is that, uh, 
uh, Boyle had originally wanted uh, Ewan McGregor to play the lead in this film, okay. and the studio said, uh, under no uncertain circumstance, the lead will be played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and uh, you, Mr. Boyle, have no say on that matter, um, which actually caused a bit of an estrangement between uh, Boyle and, and Ewan McGregor for, for many years. It is been worked out by now did did it did mm-hmm. did like mcgregor did boyle tell mcgregor he had the gig and and then it was it, it seemed to me that yeah at some point mcgregor believed that he was going to star in the movie and then uh the studios basically said no that's not gonna happen leonardo dicaprio is our guy now okay see um, see that's it's it's kind of that's really really interesting you bring that up right because like to me like like we were talking about how lifeless or problems look like stem from the script for me like the vast majority of the problems of the beach come from the fact that it's Leonardo DiCaprio in the main role. And, and, and like he, I mean, I found, I personally found him ab- absolutely insufferable. Just a smug, like uh, a smug uh, prick who was totally full of himself from one side of the movie to the other. And like, uh, could, and yet, like, had this whole presentation that, like, he was the most charming, coolest guy, <laughs> um, uh, uh, like, uh, to, to everyone he met. And, and then, and, and, but when you t- say it's like McGregor had the role, the thing is, is, uh, I think McGregor would have worked wonders for it. And, and I think the reason for that is because McGregor kind of can effortlessly play, like, hapless people out of their own league. Which is kind of what Richard's character in the beaches is, and or eventually gets to that point. But he is, um, but he's able to do it while making it look graceful and like that. No, en- very little energy is being expended to have him look. Whereas DiCaprio's Tamper to me, I mean, he can do great performances, but to me, he's perennially guilty of playing the world's oldest angst-ridden teenager. Like you can, so many times you can see him trying. Look at him trying. And then when I look at him in the beach, I'm just, look at me. I'm so hapless. I'm out of my league. Ah! <laughs> and so, and I mean, <laughs> and I just look at, and he's just working and he's working and I can see him pouring the elbow grease on his joints to, to, to make a, make a performance. Whereas like something of, of Ewan McGregor's roguish charm would have worked way more wonders for me. And, and all this might be more tolerable if not for a uh, plot twist, uh, near the end where um uh where DiCaprio's character basically goes from uh the audience surrogate even though a somewhat arrogant one <laughs> uh into uh full on losing his mind mode uh basically the the everything on the the idyllic beach has uh, yeah. fallen to hell and the different factions are at each other and at one point the man seriously puts on a bandana and goes rambo and DiCaprio yeah. cannot sell that and not only could he not sell that uh but then the return he's just as uh, uh just as instantaneously transferred back into a normal guy <laughs> yes. when, when the script asked for it. now that that's not all necessarily just D- dicaprio's fault i mean it, this is a direction problem too in the in the sense that if you're going to have somebody lose their mind uh you need to build up to it and, and the film doesn't build up to it it just happens uh 
happens immediately. Also, just kind of a, a context for this is the film uh, has very much a uh, fascination with Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So a lot of scenes kind of uh, give us the feel. There are a couple of you know, uh, callbacks, uh, like there's a scene in a, in a, in a hotel room that uh, with a fan that kind of looks like an early scene in yep. Apocalypse Now. And, uh, and somewhat of the... Uh, you know the 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 wilderness uh, driving you mad kind of thing is meant to be evocative of of a pop style, but I I don't think it works out. No, I, actually I would beg to differ a little bit, Brad, and then I would go and blame mostly Denton DiCaprio <laughs> okay. because it, it's like it's like Apocalypse Now as if the cast of Young Guns were trying trying to do it. <laughs> I mean, it just it just because because part of the idea of going crazy is you have to lose control, and DiCaprio at, uh, is an actor who is very until very recently with like Wolf of Wall Street was an alarming reluctance to ever show a person losing control. So when I look at his like Rambo scene, as you put it. I just like looking at a guy, look at me, I'm going crazy, folks, you know, and... It's a little more a gizmo from Gremlins. Yeah, yeah, so, right, so true. <laughs> yeah, so so true. And then when his turnaround is so unbelievable, you might as well think that he, like, ran out of his sugar content of his from the fruity pebbles he ate earlier that day. Like, so, it's, it's just so, like, it's such a turn back to normalcy. So, a- Andrew, are we being too hard on it? <laughs> No, I'm I'm kind of with you. I I saw this in the theater, and I remember leaving the theater going, "That was not very good." I didn't like, I didn't like that at all. Um, I watched it again last week, and while I didn't hate it, I I think you guys pretty much nailed the problems. Uh, I had no idea that you and McGregor could have played uh, the Richard character. That would have worked wonders. I DiCaprio is too big especially maybe now he's too big of a movie star like he's i expect him to be in big glitzy even if he's playing somebody off hinge like wolf of wall street maybe or or the aviator or something it's still a big glitzy movie star actor um and this movie needed somebody a little bit more down to earth i think and ewan mcgregor that would have been awesome um and I, my biggest problem with this movie is it could be really great. It could be. Um, I love the village that's been set up on the beach. I totally forgot Tilda Swinton was in this. Yeah. Um, that that was great when she showed up. I love the Robert Carlyle uh, kind of cameo, if you want to call it that. Um, but I do blame the director a little bit on that. He has – I feel like he has trouble – Showing characters going out of their minds, um, that, that like that v- weird video game sort of thing yes. that he does in the middle. Oh, that was. I awful. don't know, like yeah. stuff like that kind of works in what 127 hours, but in this, I just I'm kind of annoyed. That whole scene in with so Robert Carlyle comes back in his um, during Richard's sort of dream sequence, and there's it feels like Apocalypse Now or. It doesn't, though. What it feels more like is, like, hot shots. Um, <laughs> it's just nice. super cheap-looking. Um, there's, like, wind and pieces of paper blowing around the room. It just it doesn't look good. I don't totally understand, like, what the point is and what's going on. Um, what What is his mindset exactly? Like, I get it. He's out in the middle of the woods for a couple days, but like, why does he go absolutely nutso? Right. And why is he having these particular visions? It just doesn't, nothing really gels there. And then like you, 
again, you guys just kind of nailed it already. It just all of a sudden on a dime, it goes back to, oh, I'm just wandering around Europe now in a suit and tie and going into internet cafes and checking <laughs> yeah, my email. Like, yeah. it just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, I'm not the screenwriter here, but something need to be tightened up or expounded upon one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's, it just it's, never I works. Mean, I guess it was supposed to have the heartwarming strings as he looks fondly back on that picture. It's like, and, oh, and could you at least zoom on that guy that he killed with his own hands? Oh, wasn't those good times? <laughs> good times. Yeah, this is my biggest disappointment for Boyle because uh, the other films uh, that we've discussed and will discuss uh, that I, I don't think are very good are generally kind of films that were never going to be they were they were they were films that are based on very loose uh loose ideas that don't really come together but Mm -hmm. there was a chance that this could have been something that's that's the biggest problem Mm -hmm. yes Uh, like i'm yeah i'm right i'm right i'm right with you and in uh and not only that actually but like i i was looking into some more details upon this upon the the movie which which only completely underlines what you had to say about it like because there was some looks at differences between the book and the and the movie and in the book the book was cons- the book goes in considerably um uh like notably different direction uh, for one thing the uh for one thing he the rom- the would be romance between DiCaprio and um and Françoise of uh, the um uh French girl he invites along for the trick for the trip i mean does not uh it's not consummated, so it's always a particular longing in the book. Whereas in the movie, you have this wonderful, you have this wonderfully corny sequence where a guy says, "Oh, you can't get, you can't get her, man. She's she's French and she's done this and she's done that, and you're poor and so on." But he forgot one thing. Yeah, he's Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then and then the and the ending is dramatic. The ending is dramatically different. Basically, what ends up happening in the, and this is, yes, spo- this is spoilers for the book, but not the, not the movie, is that they, they decide, he tries to escape with some, with a group of uh, people on the island because the, the, um, the, uh, isle- the reclusive community has like turned in on itself. It's actually, the community is much more sketched out. It has like, like how we were saying that 28 days later had so many more, had these, sorry, not 28 days later, but train spotting had those, um, unique characters. The book has great many more unique characters, but they're not touched on really in in the totally. movie. Totally, yeah. And it turns out that they they try to get away by in, by doping some uh, psychedelic substances, which causes like the um, residents there to go crazy. And then when some dead bodies turn up, they turn on the dead bodies and start ripping them to shreds. Now. Does that happen to sound like any other like um <laughs> uh Danny Boyle movie, right? Now, yeah. right? And 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 furthermore, like it, the idea that like the idea that the environment that the that the whole society was that the whole society there was going crazy. Yeah. So, I look at that I I look and so and plus it's going crazy because the use of drugs went overboard, right? So, I look at the ending of the book and I think, "Oh my god, if I was Danny Boyle and I looked at that sequence like in the book, Oh, of course I'd want to film that. That's exactly in his wheelhouse, what he's interested in. So to me, it could not be more apparent what happened. He had Ewan McGregor to do this kind of thing about like drug, drug abusing people in a reclusive, in, in confined environment going crazy. Mm-hmm. And then DiCaprio and the agents and the studio heads 
went and said, no, no, DiCaprio has to get the girl. DiCaprio has to, like, like, you know, have his big, like, um, attempted Marlon Brando from Apocalypse Now scene. DiCaprio needs to, but he can't be a bad guy. <laughs> you have to show that he, like, he's learned, not only learned the error of his ways, but in fact, he's kind of like a voice of reason near the end of the movie, which is a complete joke, considering not only his action, not only like that, uh, that he went crazy, but in fact, most of the bad things that happen to the island in the movie are a result of his direct actions. Yep. <laughs> so, I, so to me, it's the biggest, it's one of the biggest disappointments of Boyle Singh to date because it's clear what it could have been. And it turns out that like, um, uh, that like Leonardo DiCaprio and the star water just literally sucked out all the, sucked out all the energy <laughs> of, of the effort, of the creative efforts that were possible. And I think I it just didn't even occur to me till now. You nailed it. You have this community, an extremely diverse group of people, and for some reason you don't really care or at least get to know about any of them. Mm-hmm. And it even takes the time when he gets there. The camera goes around and introduces every. You got the three Swedish guys. You've got the carpenter that this you know he is at odds with right from the get go. Um, you you've got the sort of British black guy. You've got all these great characters, and then they're reduced to oh, I need shaving cream. Oh, I need two bottles of whiskey. Oh, get some batteries. Like they're not they're just people on an island. You never get to bother with them very much, which is too bad. Yeah, exactly. So, and you so you nailed that. That'd be interesting. I'm never going to read the book, but it would be fun to read the book, <laughs> kind of just to see those characters fleshed out. I, I honestly, I could not be. I, I, one thing that even adds a little extra salt to my disappointment is I've become kind of an uh, the writer of the beach uh, the, of the screenplay was Alex Garland actually uh, from his book, and I've become kind of an Alex Garland super fan over to his amazingly uh, amazing film um De- Ex Machina that just came out recently, mm-hmm. and so. I was I was even more appalled to see what the results were when watching that movie. Later, a kind of a landmark film in, in the jo- zombie of the zombie genre, uh, post apocalyptic fast zombies. That's right. Um, and which, which, by the way, uh, uh, a quick note that it that looking through some of the materials for it, it turns out Alex Garland was the very guy who suggested the idea of zombies that are running. And so you can place most of the credit slash blame of those kind of zombies to him. <laughs> but it, 28 Days Later is ba- basically about said zombies that are the result of a, of a, of a plague, um, that, um, uh, that a, uh, person play, uh, that, um, a uh, character Jim played by Cillian Murphy, um, discovers when he awakens from a coma, like 20, 28 days later, which notably was done, starts without credits to kind of make it seem like there's no credits at all. <laughs> and the title is simply just uh, like a, an indicator or like a caption. <clears throat> and, and he goes and like meets up with a couple of people and his, and his attempts to survive. And it kind of crosses it, uh, for a quote unquote zombie picture. It actually seems to cross into numerous other areas too. For a while there it becomes 
a bit of a road movie. And then it turns into like more of a kind of societal commentary in addition to like, well, well, albeit one with rampaging zombies in it. Right. Of course, the uh, makers of 28 Days Later would, would not want us to refer to them as zombies. They would be say they are the infected because uh, technically they came about as a result of this uh, disease uh, from a monkey uh, being experimented mm-hmm. on. Uh, so at no point is the word uh, zombies ever used and they're actually not uh, technically dead. They're infected with rage. Is uh, Infected with rage, yeah. which is that's really interesting you bring that up because... That opening, if you think about it, is really putting up some uh, very, very interesting ideas throughout the movie, apart from the fact that, like, it's exciting to have, like, to see how these guys try and survive, because it starts with some war footage and some violence footage being on TV, and then the camera pans back to show these are being shown, displayed by a uh, trapped a cha- a trapped chimpanzee, who's kind of being, uh, she, he's strapped to a chair and then he's forced to watch this. Clockwork Orange style. Uh, oh, right. The clock. <laughs> right. Nice. Yes. It manifests himself again. And then if you and then and then it's it, it starts because of a bungled attempt to like free a bungled attempt to free these animals, which are infected with rage, which I don't know. You might get from watching like like violent filled TV shows all the time, as some may say. But then the next shot after 28 days later shows Cillian Murphy's Jim in a very similar position. He wakes up from a hospital bed. He has wires attached to him that's strapping him in. And he has a scar on his brain. It's not like a broken arm or anything. So where Mm -hmm. does Jim come from? (laughs) Like, what has happened to him to get this kind of a viewpoint, you know? And so so that's, I mean, I, I look at that and I'm like, and I kind of want to see, like, I find Cillian Murphy, like, a re- in, in his Boyle films, he's kind of a really interesting kind of, a really interesting kind of character to me. Because it seems like he kind of seems a little bit to me like Bowie's man who fell to earth kind of character. He's He has a kind of innocence to him, you know? And it's a way that he approaches, it's a way that he approaches things that doesn't have the kind of grime that, like, that the humanity is, that the humanity in those environments have had to, have had to deal with. Which leads to one of the more striking sequences uh, early on in the film, uh, which is uh, Murphy uh, alone in what appears to be a deserted uh, London, uh, wandering around. You see all these places like uh, Big Ben and the Parliament uh, uh, sans people completely. Now, this, this kind of thing would be done later with CGI, but there was no CGI available to them, so... Uh, this was uh, this was done by blocking streets and whatnot. And the the effect is is wonderfully eerie, and and again we're we're we're, we're basically genre hopping again now this time into horror. But I think this time it works like gangbusters. I think uh, Twenty Eight Days Later is Boyle's best work up to this point. The direction uh, that we've been talking about is energetic and frantic. Absolutely moves to the next level, uh, and also you know, functions as a horror film, but has more on its mind than that. Uh, as we, you know, the, as the plot moves on from uh, kind of the last man on earth circumstance to uh, to the more standard zombie t- zombies to when they run across a, a military base and have to deal with a different kind of threat. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I've never put this together until right now, but as we were talking about the beach and all the control that the studio had over it, 
it's no surprise that 28 Days Later is my favorite Danny Boyle film and probably my favorite horror film of all time. Um, I just realized now Danny Boyle got off the beach and he said, all right, motherfuckers, I'm going to do this my way and I'm going to do my direction style and I'm going to cast the people I want. Um, and this is what I can do. And this is what comes out of it. And it's, it's all his, like just great creativity, new ideas, a great look like clearly it was done on the cheap. I mean, it's not cheap to block off the street going past big Ben or whatever. But, um, if you look there's that's very limited and very fast. Um, but through editing and different camera angles, it makes it feel like this just huge, epic open world, um, that he's alone in. I think like just the opening shot uh, well okay after the monkey scene which is great it's a great way to get around the zombie thing you as you guys mentioned they're infected um and that's why they can run fast so this isn't George Romero's world it's a completely different thing but then the opening shot in the hospital is a fully nude male laying on the like you don't see that in movies period ever do you see a penis um i think that's that's uh, like it just shows that Danny Boyle has complete control over this thing, and I'm going to do what I want, and fuck you if you don't like it. Um, and yeah, and then once so he wanders around, and then once he meets Celine and Mark, the movie just takes off. The pacing is great, like you said, it's a road movie, and in and every you know 15 minutes or so they're dealt with another situation and each situation, although they all deal with the zombies or the infected, each one's a little bit different. Um, each one has profound, uh, like of an effect on each of the characters. Um, I, I, I just love this movie of pieces. I could talk about it all day. The way they talk about when there is downtime and they talk about their experience with how it all started and what happened and the way they describe it, and you can think about that in your head. I I love that stuff. It wasn't on the news anymore. Pretty soon it was in the streets, and then it was coming through your window. I love that line. Um, and just just the way it's all described. And then Mark tells his story about being in the train station and having to crawl. Oh, he looked down and realized he was just walking on people, and he had to climb over. The terror that that puts in your imagination um, is just wonderful. And these zombies are terrifying and scary and brutal. And I I don't know. And I guess we can talk about the way it's shot on video. Yeah. I love it. I know a lot of people think this is an ugly movie. I think this is the movie where Danny Boyle really has comes up with his style in terms of lighting I know he's got a cinematographer and whatever, but the way he'll shoot reflections or people coming through the light or or walking into it and use of shadow um, and negative space and fast editing. Like, this is Danny Boyle's... This is what I can do. Finally, I figured out my style. Everything from here on out is going to be like this or have, you know, elements of this movie... I don't know. Sorry, I get excited when I, I just it's just, just 
rambling strand of thoughts because that is I love mo- this movie so much. No, no, that is no that 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 is, attitude is uh, most welcome. Not just because I actually share most of it. <laughs> um, uh, I am. I actually. I feel on. I feel for both sides of that video display debate because I, I to to me like the one major frustrating thing about like the view of of the visuals of Twenty Eight Days Later is that. He's clearly got some really impressive, like, is really impressive in terms of, like, for his compositions, in terms of how, how, like, how he's using a frame of what, of, of, of the people's positions through it, of just varying the kind of, like, situations from, like, like, um, from the really claustrophobic initial um, uh, um, infected encounters to the, um, to the later scenes, which all have a pastoral beauty to them. Mm-hmm. To like, to like the, to like the ending sequences, which actually work in this kind of really, really strange way that I'm gonna, I'm going to strangely associate it with like kind of Blade Runner in the sense that like it's not just, um, it's not just a new infected that that's a threat, but also like there's a reckoning with like the old history of the place done by like the statues and the paintings. And he's, and, and I see him bringing all this out, but unfortunately, like the the grain, the not the grain, but the the quality of the video uh, of the video display comes across like as if he had a had a pristine vision, and then he stuck enough scotch tape in front of his camera lens <laughs> to kind of mess it around just a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I think um, we've now seen a lot of films uh, in that style, uh, and in in the hands of lesser filmmakers, I think that can tend to be the result. Um, Prior to this, uh, it's a style I mostly associate with war films like uh, Saving Private Ryan, yes. and particularly the opening battle sequence. And uh, I think uh, Black Hawk Down may have come out be- mm-hmm. before this film. But um, I, no, I, I like the, the stylistic choice because um, it, it, it changes the, 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 what had been the horror dynamic up until that point, which is, you know, you know, wait, the bump, the bump at the side, the, the way it builds suspense. And, uh, and, and it uses, uh, it uses that to disorient you, to put you in, in a place so that when you're in the, uh, in the tunnel, uh, where mm-hmm. all the cars are jammed up and they have to change their flat tire, uh, I, I think it just creates an enormous amount of suspense, uh, mm. and, and does it, uh, pretty pretty consistent yeah definitely Mm. and i i don't know there's all these like establishing shots that are just gorgeous with all those buckets on the roof when they're trying to collect rain yes Um, like that's such a great shot Mm -hmm. or even something simple like when they're way in the distance and they see the christmas lights flashing on that one building yes Yes. like all these shots are in my opinion, just gorgeous. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He has a right, right. Like Boyle showing a real Boyle showing a real something, which I think is really clever and insightful, which is taking, taking ordinary things. And by, by moving the placement in a, in a way that's unfamiliar to us actually gets us harkening back to like thinking of the, the world that was before the infected. You know, like these, and just by just putting in a details, like you guys said, the Christmas lights here, the, uh, the different colored buckets, which show, you know, yeah. every bucket was someone else's, was someone else's bucket, right? At one point, you know, and now, and now this is like their story over on this rooftop. And we also have the secret weapon, uh, uh of every British film, which is, uh, Brendan Gleeson, who, uh, <laughs> he rules. I, who he always, rules. when I see him show up in whatever, I'm like, 
okay, this movie just got a little better. That was one of the, yes, that was, uh, what happens to him is one of the, like, one of the more, more unfortunate, like, all-time, you know, like, zombie unfortunate developments, uh, mm-hmm. zombie-based unfortunate <laughs> developments. And how it's done is really interesting, too, because it's, because he is a guy who's been trying to keep a facade of his family together and getting kind of a surrogate family coming along, you know, and it's at this moment of weakness that he hits a post that causes the uh, the drop of blood to fall and it's literally even put in from an a top down perspective so it's almost like kind of in a way it almost is like the um uh like the fate of the guy from a serious man <laughs> like where he gets a moment of weakness and that's his demise and you don't even think that's um uh, the that's the punishment is way worse than the, way worse than the crime mm-hmm. right yeah, and it's such a sweet moment, too. Like, it's horrifying, terrifying, because you know it's going to happen. But I love that he gets that one moment with his daughter. It's yes. just fucking heartbreaking. Yes. He's just, I love you so much. Get away from me. Mm-hmm. And, and then it happens. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, and another thing that I want to run by you guys that I find I also found really interesting about it was how, like, you know, like as they pointed out, Jillian Murphy is... Jim starts off in a kind of similar position to the monkey, but he kind of almost ends in some ways. He almost ends up that way too, because like he is has shirtless. He's running around bloody around the mansion. And in fact, one character later in the movie actually suspects that he has become infected himself. But, but in point of fact, he leads to leads to the demise of a great many people. <laughs> yeah. Now you may say it's the right re- that it's the quote unquote right reasons, but nevertheless, those guys are you. You watch them scream, and you watch them get uh, get uh, horribly mutilated by what uh, what happens to them. Well, and we, so, we should mention kind of what Christopher Eccleston's character is up to there. Basically yes, they've entered a military base that uh, allegedly was supposed to be the place where people could go to escape from the infected and, and find some protection. Uh, but as it turns out, we have a, uh, a group of uh, soldiers who have gone pretty rogue and uh, are looking uh, for females uh, to uh, rape, basically. And uh, yeah. and at this point, Murphy is, is traveling uh, uh with a couple, uh, a, w- a woman and a girl that he's found, and uh, they find themselves not only having to contend with the infected, but now with this uh, uh, th- this uh, group led by Eccleson, who you know shows that the you know humans are just as much a problem as anyone. Yeah. Now Eccleson's character does make a point about how, like, look, they're they're holed up, and they have no idea if any other humans will show up. And up until then, they were all they were mostly considering suicide because they had no idea of they had no idea of a future. And so they, the movie does give have Eccleston give that speech. And do you in any way um, buy it, or do you kind of think this is just an excuse for like guys who just want to do bad things, and this is just what they uh, the, what they say to cover for it? They might be telling themselves that. They may be but, telling themselves uh, that. Okay. This ends up being, uh, you know, you know, a pretty ornery, uh, group. And, uh, but, but, but uh, again, now as on a film level, the suspense is doubled because you're not just having to worry about the infected, but also this, uh, group of soldiers now who yeah. have become, uh, just as, as dangerous. And you see, I, I actually, I, I really, I really like the way the, uh, uh, characters, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the female lead character. Um, uh, Celine? 
yeah, Celine, the, the way uh, uh, Murphy's character and Celine, uh, their relationship grows is not forced. It's done very realistically and in a way that the, the situation uh, makes completely believable. And so when he has to when he has to get into a protector mode, uh, it, everything has built towards this point, and it really works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We we should take this moment to say, "World, this is Naomi Harris. Naomi Harris, this is the world." Like this was her first movie, as far as I know. Ah. Um, yeah. So and now kind of and, an and now she's on the cusp of uh, perhaps even getting awarded for her performance in Moonlight. Yep. Yeah, so I'm I'm a huge Naomi Harris fan, so it was that's always fun too. And I think I probably at least for me this had to be my introduction to Killian Murphy. I don't think that I had seen him in anything else previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was good too. I mean, how did you? I mean, how did you like his? How did you like his character? Did you? I mean, like especially when he turns into like that that the way he would win is to literally free the uh, infected <laughs> and 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 other like yeah. I mean. You, I mean, and especially what happens to him. Did you find that an appropriate ending? Well, yes. I mean, I do at this point. I've sort of come to grips with the third act. A lot of people have problems with um, the third act in this film. Uh, and I, I still say it's probably my least favorite part of the movie. But I do like I have learned to like it. Um, like Brad was saying, it's. It's people you got to watch out for, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, Boyle explores that idea a lot. But also any zombie survival guide that you read will tell you, stay the hell away from people. They're <laughs> just as dangerous. Um, but I kind of like, as opposed to um, Leonardo DiCaprio trying to do this in the beach, like kind of go rogue, kind of go Rambo all of a sudden. I think Killian's Murphy, Killian Murphy's version of that where he finally has had enough i don't think he's totally lost his mind he might be a little unhinged just because of dealing with what he's been dealing with but i think he just says you know what i've had enough of this i'm no longer a bike messenger i am now um i need to take charge of this situation in mm-hmm. any way i can and i'm going to use all my smarts and cleverness and strength to get it done yeah. and i i think he does that, like sneaking around, and it almost becomes like a siege movie. Or yeah, um, I I really like watching him do all those things and run around. And it's it's a smart idea to let the zombie go and have him use it as a weapon. Yeah, um, I, I kind of like all that idea. Yeah, the and, movie and, seems to me. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, nope. but I was just saying. The, I think the movie is working on a kind of another kind of level. If you if you give a little if you give a little a thought on. Like, not only is he, like, you know, shown more bedraggled uh, as he's, like, but he's, in a way, he's almost kind of the monster threatening, you know, the base full of people. He is the alien <laughs> to this military installations, uh, military uh, marines. But then also, I think the turning point for him, and I think maybe part of the reason why it works way better for me than DiCaprio's worked in the beach, is he, ironically, is he gets hope because he's lying on his back and he sees a contrail flying across a clear blue sky yeah. which shows him that oh no society isn't all destroyed there actually is something going on something uh, to fight for yeah that's exactly so it's kind of like the very moment of hope that the that the soldiers need by and and try for in their horrible ways by via these via abducting the women 
is like, but then hope is also what saves them from by getting Killian uh, Murphy to become like uh, to go through all this to save them. Right, and it's a wonderful uh, turn of the knife. How uh, you know initially uh, the characters, and we believe this is a worldwide ec- epidemic. Yes, uh, when uh, a little logic and a little thinking it through uh, shows that uh, no, this probably has been limited to England, but nobody can get in and out, in or out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it right. It gives right. It gives a look at like what the perils of having a limited viewpoint can do to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, 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 oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I was going to say another turning point for him is when he has to kill the young boy. Yes. Oh, yes. And when they stop off, like that's a moment for him where it changes him as a person. Yes. Uh, and I think if that hadn't happened to him, um, maybe he wouldn't have been able to pull off all the stuff that he, he might not be willing to lay down in a bunch of dead bodies and then fight. Yeah, um, and be willing to kill. But I think that had such a devastating effect on him. He'd seen it happen before. He watched Selena kill Mark without a hesitation earlier in the film. Yeah, um, which is a great scene. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that that moment that's like a revelation, a horrible one to have to happen. But it's like I you actually see that in war movies a lot. I think you'll see the guys. Um, it's in Saving Private Ryan. It's in We Were Soldiers. Um, probably a bunch of others where you somebody who's not really ready to kill or is reluctant to kill, and then once they do, all of a sudden they're like a killing machine. They get the taste for it, and um, maybe that's ex- going off a little bit on what was intended. But I feel like that that moment is a big one. In the it movie. is. It, it, it really shows his skill here because. That's a tricky scene. We're talking about uh, the hero of the movie having to kill uh, what looks like a young child. And there's a hundred ways that could go wrong. And uh, <clears throat> the the direction here is so assured that, that he not only makes it work, but he makes it that integral uh, plot point that you yeah, guys are talking yeah. about. And, and, and I think it's also interesting to note that, like, that is the uh, that the young boy before he's before he's killed. He says he screams out, "I hate you." The one thing that it infected has articulated uh, in the I think in the whole movie is at that moment when they're at like kind of their most quote unquote human. Well, apparently, as the infected are are growling and making noises, um, uh, this is from the audio commentary. They are actually saying things like that. We just can't understand them because their rage has so overcome them. Oh, okay. Hmm. See, that's that's interesting too. I didn't I didn't recognize that either, but I did get a sense of humanity from the the one zombie that the army guys have chained up. Mm-hmm. You get a sense of somewhat of humanity there. Like he's actually in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not just a mindless zombie. It, right. it, there's a person in there. He's just sick. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know. There might be something to that that's kind of interesting. And yeah, that, that moment the, uh, the the zombie chained up for uh, entertainment is is uh, a callback to the Romero zombie, specifically the uh, in Day of the Dead. There right. is a uh, mm-hmm. domesticated zombie that uh, this yeah. uh, was meant to recall. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and even I think I want to say that even in like the final moments, like that that uh, that particular that particular member of the infected has his last moment as he looks outside as as Killian and. 
and um and uh goes and makes his escape and there, he's like shown in the doorway of the mansion with the rain coming in you know mm-hmm. and he's and he's watching them off like like that they're that they're that it isn't a matter of it's like completely lost and he's just a uh, just animated matter you know hmm and I, I think it's also kind of cute to note that like um that we've been describing like this is his kind of uh that boils fucky response to the kind of interference that plagued him so to speak on the beach um and to which like which i find is interesting because it could you could almost say it's boils like version of after hours except that after hours also features a guy who's stuck in a city that seems mostly deserted except for roving gangs of rampaging <laughs> rampaging people so it's yeah. like hmm, that might be kind of the go-to move when you want to make your anti when you want to make your uh, anti-hollywood statement <laughs> or at least at least maybe boyle found some sort of equivalent solace in in um uh, uh in following on that you know I, I mean to sum up like my impressions on the movie as is, in terms of like in terms of like like Boyle's visual ambition, I am I am most impressed by what he does in in Twenty Eight Days Later. Like Brad is told, I, I'm completely agreeing with him, Brad. That like he has a real tightrope to 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 try and like to like put like put people in these different situations and maintain a tone where you care about these guys through like these multiple different genres of film that they go through and have it work and have it work out. Have us want to follow them along on their on their journey, and 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 he is incredibly visually ambitious in this uh, in this film. Just the idea of doing a deserted <laughs> uh, central London district is is uh, is uh, is just a mammoth in conce- a mammoth idea to conceptualize and to even think to try and bring it out. You know, right. kind of you know, it's a maybe a minor key way of. You know, it's not—it's not like bringing a um, a, a steamship across a mountain. <laughs> but you know what? In its own way, it's thinking outside of what's expected, and then seeing if you can make it possible. Right. And another movie uh, made around the same time uh, attempted did the same thing. Uh, Vanilla Sky uh, did similar things, uh, right? In New York, and uh, you know, Vanilla Sky I think was a 2001 movie, and this was a 2002 movie. But they would have been thinking that whole how do we handle this deserted street yeah 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 yeah. and 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 like um yeah and and it's and the movie for for me is chock full of just really just great images to kind of show this level of desertion and loneliness and like and sense of like that humanity has gone astray something that like a a film called a film called children of men also i think did to really really good effect Mm -hmm. but but that was like i think what a decade later than um uh and 28 days later was already working that kind of effect of like how like i especially like the nature part the idea that nature will be coming make a be making a comeback you know is um was i, I had a had a lot uh, there was a lot of uh, imagery in here that like got that impression about like the the like the shots on the horses and when like uh, murphy was waking up uh, having a bad dream he was dreaming about flocks of sheep being herded off in the wrong direction which is another interesting note and the idea of like having the having the ma- having the scenes at the end be at a, like an old mansion to literally have like the most like sense of history but like the sense of history left behind I mean, he is he is working on multiple genres, multiple levels, and and do, expressing a lot of great things with that. And as you briefly said at the beginning, it's a landmark film. Like so many movies after this used a ton of tropes from this thing, like copycats, expounding a little bit more on the universe. I mean, there's a sequel, not directed by Danny Boyle, but the mm-hmm. sequel is really good. It's really good. Um, so I think. 
this changed the genre um yes hugely hugely for yeah. years to come yeah it's it's a case of like where you where we were talking about how certain films are like the 90s movie like like especially like how the beaches take about how you should warn about technology or worry about that evil game boy messing up your life on the beach <laughs> whereas this one is a case where it's starting other you can sense like its origins but it had it had a lasting it is it is able to take that and give a like a lasting impact you know now now much like you know much like a great many like filmmakers have like started like with a really ambitious and and successful and an ambitious film sometimes like they lower their scope and that's certainly been like the case with like Boyle's next film which goes um uh, goes in a very very like low key i think it's is only non-rated r film um uh millions um, was a story about a um, uh, about two young children and their and their dad who moved to a new neighborhood by by some um, uh, by the train tracks and and the youngest is built a little built a little fort where he can dream about the, uh, where he can daydream in um, in his um, environment and he and talk to these saints that he's become a fan of and um, uh, which he's gotten to talking to after the death of his after the death of his mother and then. Like out of the sky, a suitcase full of money comes in, and the movie continues by showing the adventures of him and his older brother as they see what to do with the money, which has a ticking clock scenario because this is right at the moment when when British pounds are being converted into euros. So they have a limited time to spend or give this money, and it seems like um you spending a million uh spending your millions is a little harder than it uh, uh first appears this would be a, a good time to mention a, a a little biographical uh thing about danny boyle which is that uh at some point in his youth uh uh his family thought he would uh, become a priest and so although he became less religious uh later on uh he was raised up with raised with uh Catholicism, and I think in this film uh, more than any, you 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 see evidence of that. And I, I, I some of the most effective uh, scenes are these uh, conversations he holds with the saints. There's this wonderful way the child actor goes about interacting with them. Is that uh, he provides them with kind of the textbook. Uh, basic information about the saint and uh and then begins the the conversation and they have these uh subtle halos that uh that that, that just you know work very well for kind of a low-key film like this i i guess i should chime in here saying unfortunately this is the one movie that i wasn't able to have time to get to for this discussion but i would say it's interesting that you mentioned um this is his only non R-rated film. I didn't know that, but it makes perfect sense because what I do remember um is that I didn't really care for Millions. I didn't dislike it. It's one of these movies that I found again, I don't I remember very little other than just my impressions of it, which were that it was very safe and it was I wouldn't say it was a kids movie, but it wasn't really an adult movie either. Which always for me is like, eh, it's just not really for anybody. It's just it's just safe and kind of cute, but not funny. Um, and I just didn't really care that much about mm-hmm. it. So it's interesting that it 
it's not an R-rated film. Um, I didn't know that, but now that makes perfect sense. It's is it PG thirteen? No, no, it's just PG. Um, oh wow! It, it okay. probably would be appropriate for kids, and and its reputation when it came out was as this is going to now after Danny Boyle's uh, horror movie is going to be Danny Boyle's uh, children's movie, right? Uh, it you know it's a little more sophisticated um than what we sometimes think of as mm-hmm. as children's movies but uh you know i i don't feel that this is one of his best this doesn't you know i don't put it at the level of a of a 28 days later or a slumdog millionaire but uh it is a, a film that i think has some really nice uh nice qualities to it um you know working you know we have very uh, engaging uh child actors and uh and and you know the the question about uh you know how to spend this money it bring, brings out some really interesting ethical uh, ethical questions. It also has a a great callback uh, to Shallow Grave because mm-hmm. there is a scene where uh, the money we find out is uh, is stolen, uh, and uh, and and one of the uh, the thieves is uh, out to get it back, and he ends up hiding in the. Uh, in the attic of the the house that the children live in, and uh, uh, there, there's almost exact reproduction of the choreography uh, of uh, of Shallow Grave when uh, the the crooks return to that house to get their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, right. It's it is not um, <coughs> pardon me. It's not one of his. It's not one of Boyle's. Like it's not one of Boyle's. Like more engaging, but I kind of think it is a way of him like dialing it back after. Like twenty eight days or twenty eight days later is very much attempting to engage like some of the big big questions of like you know like like any post apocalyptic uh, kind of film is going to try to do. In fact, I think they even had a mo- mention where the main character would go to a board which shows all these missing people. And this is a film that was I think maybe even being made around the time of two thousand eleven of nine eleven. Uh, and um but did ha- but these but the filming had been before that event had actually happened so like you're maybe in a um after a film where you're dealing with these really big questions you want to kind of mute it and it went but i find like his boils like kind of like take on morality pretty uh pretty interesting on that it's it's kind of like this it's uh again it's not like nihilistic but there is a kind of a wry sensibility to how morality can be really complicated like like the when the when the um father finds out about that they have the money for example his reaction is not <laughs> at all what you expect the standard like ward cleaver like reaction to to it should be and and like even the various saints have different opinions mm-hmm. upon what about what should happen on the money and like it actually is another one, another one of my favorite boil moments where like the old the brother who's a little older it basically he he has some ideas of how to use the money be popular and <laughs> and know where to throw the money around and um and there's a point where the there's a point where the younger one asks him, uh, "No, I thought the money just came from God because like when we when we cry when our mom is dead, like we get stuff. So I thought, well, God could go get us some money." And and then and then the older guy says, "Well, he says, well, in a way." And then the younger kid immediately responds, "God doesn't rob banks." <laughs> um, <laughs> like um, and and so the thing is, is though that particular attitude is, I mean. I think it catches at odds, maybe to maybe to a U.S. audience, because that kind of like like relatively complex attitude towards right and wrong and what you do on it is antithema to how lessons are taught in kids' movies in America. So it 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 kind of hits it it kind of hits you in a, in a totally different way when you when you see it. 
And then also the threat is actually quit, is still done in a frightening manner, maybe a little too frightening for a kids movie. Yes, that particular sequence that we're called Shallow Grave is actually really suspenseful. Yeah, and, and, and every time he appears, but uh, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting, kind of dealing with the morality of the kids. One of the uh, uh, repeated uh, situations is that. Uh, they realize that uh, their their mother has died, and they realize that if they tell people their mother has died, they can get things. So they uh, they go ahead and and do that. <laughs> yes, right, yeah. exactly, and right, and right, and and, and and right, and the movie doesn't and the movie doesn't even chastise for him. It kind of has a very kind of um, it has a very empathetic way of like <laughs> of looking at well, this is kind of what you do to right. <laughs> get. Uh, but you know, some of the uh, children's movies we most love as we grow up, you know, uh, Willy Wonka and, and, and so forth, uh, are also a little bit uh, on the edge of uh, <laughs> acceptability in, in, in some of its lessons. And yeah. uh, I think that kind of thing actually, you know, helps make this movie a little uh, more enjoyable because it, it, it doesn't just, you know, scold. It, it no, really kind it, of it spending the movie asking what what is right what would uh you know in, in this case we're dealing with you know a, a child who's very religious you know what what would god want what how would how would this uh be viewed in a, in a catholic sense yeah. yeah right it's a it's kind of almost like a <laughs> it kind of almost works like the mini silence in that um uh you have the the little kid is seeing these visions and other people know he's seeing them and he call it over he call it over into question and and like the ending sequence like uh i mean it's i'm not sure if it i'm not sure if it quite works or not if whether like you're meant to believe on the rather supernatural things that happen at the end or not next film is like you can't even think of a grander scale <laughs> like 28 days later was the problems of the world but sunshine is like you the problems of the world he had to get out of the world to try and solve them <laughs> it's about a, a, a spaceship that needs to is heading straight for the sun because it needs to go and send out a payload that will recharge it to give it a proper warmth to keep the planet to keep the planet from freezing and um and you and over and over the course of the film, you have a, a crew of people with all with different like motivations, dreams, and and the way that the proximity to the sun affects them all in all in different ways. Um, and it, it it looks at how like like the various trials they go to as they get closer and closer uh, to uh, uh, to the sun, and then mostly meet up with a wayward ship that had tried the journey before, end up like. Um, end up like looking at like their own uh, looking at their own individual purposes and the purposes of their mission as a whole um phenomenally ambitious <laughs> leap for for Boyle in the full science fiction realm right again he seems to be looking to uh, conquer different genres and uh, here I, I I think is uh, a bit of a mixed result I love the first hour or so of the film, maybe a, a little bit longer. Um, it heads into a place uh, as it goes towards its conclusion that I, I, I feel completely undermines 
the the entire film. But until that happens, you know, we have some great uh, uh, great science fiction uh, elements of you know the kind of the what if quality uh, in dealing with the sun because that's not a subject that we see a lot of. So we have uh, this room where you can. Uh, view the sun uh with with various levels of protection and and it's made clear that as that protection is removed it could uh burn your eyes out make you go mad or and finally kill you as you get closer to the sun depending on what happens and then there's i i really like the dynamic between the crew there's all kinds of uh different types again uh killian murphy is uh is back as the uh, audience uh, surrogate in this case a physicist uh you have uh kind of a uh if, if you uh, an alien like uh menagerie of uh, of crew members who are uh for the most part really interesting to watch uh, interact yes mm-hmm. but i'm not a big fan of um by the way this is jim you might remember me from such shows as Directors Club, <laughs> and uh, I'm not a big fan of Pan, Pan Baker. Is that the the guy? The Pinbacker, Pinbacker, or Pinhead, the um, Sun Killer. Yes, uh, the Sun Killer. That whole it turns into kind of a slasher movie in a way, and I'm I love the movie so much up until that villain is introduced, and I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say about this turn that the movie takes. And uh, I'm sure Andrew will defend that choice, but I've never been a big fan of where this movie ends up. The end. Uh, oh, hey. Uh, uh, but Jim, before you before you go back to your home planet, if you could um um if you could just uh, give a couple words as to why you thought the movie was so great up until that point. The visuals and the score, I think. Boyle's ambition here is fully realized. Clearly, he's a fan of 2001 and Alien, and I think he pays homage quite beautifully and makes it his own with this really compelling story that you get invested in. Like, Brad brought up most of my points that I agree with in terms of the crew and the character dynamics. All solid. Everything's really great, but introducing a villain was just not the way to go with this story. Okay, like there's some, yeah, I think I, I, there might be some interesting contrary views upon uh, upon this. But uh, Andrew, what what would be, um, uh, what's your take on on um, on the film and on Jim's perspective about it? Um, okay, well, first of all, I would say this is I, I love Sunshine. This is probably my second favorite, and it would be. I think you're confusing me, Jim, with uh, my co-host. Um, because I love this movie and it would probably be my favorite Boyle movie if it weren't for that third act. Um, I, I think it's a huge misstep in terms of direction. I, I, I don't mind the idea of introducing a villain that causes problems. I don't even totally mind the fact that it turns into a slasher movie. Although eh. the, <laughs> the biggest problem for me is the, the, tonal change that it has the total shift in direction um like i i don't mind if there's a guy running around killing people but it turns it into um hellraiser with like the score almost turns into psycho literally the and the and the weird all this weird fisheye angle shit and like the the it's all blurry um and just it's just weird and if the entire movie was like that like i would love to see 
Boyle's version of a slasher movie, like the the Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I'd love to see that movie. I don't want it as the pinnacle of my hard science fiction film that up until then was so gorgeous and philosophical and um, scientific and interesting and with a this great uh, dynamic of characters um, which I would like to talk about all that but just to stick with the the slasher stuff at the end there is the idea which I kind of subscribe to at this point is that Pinnebaker is not actually on the ship it's all Killian Murphy who uh, has sort of gone mad uh, here we go with Danny Boyle not doing so well with a character who's gone mad um, and it's actually like a split personality almost mm-hmm. like he um, and if you watch the movie there is there's a lot of credence to that theory um, and like you never see Pinnebacker with another character aside from Killian Murphy yeah he's you see uh, um, Cassie plays by Rose Byrne, Rose Byrne you see her kind of getting chased around by a hidden figure in the shadows she stabs at the character and then just um, like kind of is looks dumbfounded and when she sees Jim at the end in that giant room there's something about her demeanor that does suggest that she is scared of Killian Murphy ah. um, in that scene and it's I don't know I think it's interesting and the fact that in that scene the Pinnebaker villain like lifts him up like Darth Vader with one hand or like yeah. that's not possible right so I think that there's a, a a good possibility that it's just simply a split personality somebody who's gone mad aboard this ship I- he's the one that made the decision to that makes everything go wrong um and he's the one that has to deal with it. I just, uh, I think that's that's an interesting take on it. And it helps for me. It helps, uh, I guess that's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, which is the whole idea and the way it's directed. I don't like at all. It's at odds with the rest of the film. Right. I mean, that definitely puts a different spin on it. And it's it's not a it's not something I had considered before. Um, I think... Even if you read it that way, I, I, I still find it problematic because the film has already established that it is dealing with the ultimate threat, which is the sun, and mm-hmm. uh, how uh, they're going to overcome the, these obstacles. Um, so whether it's and, and just a, a little bit of background on, on the, the the character is uh, that he is the captain of the first ship. Uh, the first Icarus one, which uh, uh, was a mission from years earlier. So we're, we're supposed to believe that he survived uh, on the spaceship orbiting uh, uh, Mercury, I believe uh, for seven years or so. um, And then has secretly made his way onto the ship with uh, an incredibly sophisticated computer system. So, you know, I mean, having it be a, uh, having uh, Killian Murphy uh, be a split personality solves a lot of those problems. But it still, I, I just think, lessens the impact because we're still now dealing with a human threat. 
and it still starts to be filmed in those sequences near the end, like a slasher film, which is so yeah. at odds with the mood that the, that the movie was trying so hard to develop uh, in its earlier parts. Yes. The, um, uh, yeah, the ultimate, I mean, the ultimate issue on that particular end to me is that it's, is that it's a, is that it's a tonal shift that unlike the, some of the shifts in 28 days later say that it, it does not, that it does not work. I I feel really I feel really kind of awful about that ending because I can see with the hands of a more adventurous director that was more willing to like go like really really far it was doing something that potentially could have been quite quite awesome. And what what do I mean by that? I mean how like Boyle hints at this by when he shows the when he shows Pinbacker it's very rarely as a full figure Instead, it's like, like earlier in the movie, one of the characters who you kind of think might have gone off, have gone a little off the deep end starts talking really enthusiastically about the sun, saying like how darkness is just absence. But when you get a lot of sunlight, it envelops you. It fills you up. You don't know where you end and the sun begins. And I look at like how Pinbacker is displayed in that scene. In those last scenes, and he's shown that way. It's very much out of focus, like and, and like his very. It's blurry, and he doesn't have he doesn't have a a definition, and it ties me. It ties into me to like, if you could almost have gone in kind of like this a, a kind of a Malik direction because, because I kind of think of of like the Kappa character played by Killian Murphy. He's kind of like this holy kind of idiot kind of guy because he's or an innocent at least not an not necessarily an idiot but like he's he's like naive he takes too much time recording to talk home and also i think something really significant happened to him when he was assisting the captain earlier in the film because they're right on the edge literally they're on the edge of where the sunlight and he gets that glimpse so in a film that has this kind of idea of like, where is this combination of scientific, you know, concerns, but then also ideas of religion and faith, right? Mm-hmm. So I think at that moment, he may have like just touched on something of a spirit, a touching of a spiritual nature upon seeing such an awesome display of power, kind of akin to like what Herzog think it had that volcano documentary into the inferno. And Herzog touches on this, and actually in a lot of his films, about how nature has this can be this overwhelming presence. And so I actually took Pinbacker to me, the way he kind of could work, could have worked, is he's a kind of a spiritual kind of devil that tempts him away, that's trying to tempt him away from the mission, like caused by the very elements, like which caused the captain's death in front of him. So it's like, it's like part of the environment itself is, is tempting him, akin to like what the haunted house in The Shining is tempting him. And, and I think the, I think Boyle gets to, he gets really close by doing that. But unfortunately, is some of the, some of the plot developments kind of re- send it not just crashing down to Earth, but unfortunately sends it crashing into the sub basement of, of serial killer slasher movies. Oh, is he hiding behind this post? Is, um, uh, oh, look, he's able to like, he's, uh, he's been on the ship for how many years and he can low lift people with one hand, like, like, and, it just sent it crashing down when what it could have been glorious if he just went a little extra. I mean, how so? How crazy do you think <laughs> I am for that kind of theory, guys? <laughs> well, I mean, there it, it starts to go that direction with the Cliff Curtis character, like you said. Like he, I mean, you could have made it him end up sort of being the villain, just having this 
realization or or um like epiphany or whatever by looking at the sun all the time and having this i don't know just sort of going mad by the sun and him having questions and second thoughts about saving humanity and all that um no i i mean i i think sort of along the lines of the beach is like this could have been really great and it just failed miserably and that's what makes it so disappointing well al i, ha- but, I hate to throw your yeah. guy under the bus a bit but uh this is also a, an alex garland script yeah, yeah right uh, i think we have some uh, third act problems <laughs> yeah he doesn't right he seems to like he seems to kind of like like um uh pull his punches in the third in the third act and put a con you know because it is that the the idea of him of the of a killer there is of totally makes perfect sense if you were a hack screenwriter right because the idea of the idea is when they're on their mission they have a greater purpose but they also don't have any there will not be any sense of them overcoming because they're not you know they will most likely not make it but the idea is let's put in a threat they can overcome right away let's some person they can defeat Right. And that way, the uh, that way in the, in theory, the audience can go, oh well, at least they triumphed in a little way over a, over an individual, you know. But but yeah, it's some. Um, uh, but I, and in fact, I do kind of think, Brad, that it is a case where like the story itself got was bogged down, and and actually Boyle nearly rescued it. I think I think through Boyle, I think Boyle had a ch- uh, had something going on with the with the idea of the sunlight, you know, as a kind of this big presence it's like the anti-noir in a way you know whereas the characters in noirs are enveloped by are enveloped by darkness here's the light that goes and changes and influence people and influences you know their behavior and he almost got it by showing how he depicted pinbacker but the, but unfortunately the kind of hoops he had to do were just not you know and then yeah. it, le- it leads me to like the final scene uh, the actual final scene of sunshine i enjoy a great deal where yep. kappa is right at the border he has all the material on one side, which is forming like these constellations of energy. And then he has the, the, the like column of fire literally on the other side of the screen and they're facing off against each other and he's in the middle. And time stops. And time stops. Yeah. Exactly. And it seems, and, and it seems, and there's kind of a, and again, it brings me back to like this kind of, like otherworldly man who fell to earth kind of presence that I think Killian Murphy brings in to both of his roles in Boyle films. He's, he, it's a sense that he's a dreamer. And in a way, he kind of gets the kind of a dream of being able to touch the infinite in a, in a similar way to what Bowman does in 2001. And he even mentions earlier that he had dreamed, uh, that he does dream about falling into the sun. That's right. And then we see it, it happen. And, uh, and, yeah. and again, once the uh, killer is disposed of, this now starts to work very well. I will nitpick one other thing about it, though. The, uh, uh, which is kind of a, a scale issue, and it may just be a budgetary issue, mm-hmm. but uh, we're supposed to believe that this this bomb is about the size of Manhattan yeah. that they're bringing on. And I never got the sense through the uh, CGI that uh, of of the scale we were actually looking at. It was always somehow a little off for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, even that shot with him like strapped to the like he gets in the suit and he's. He grabs the hatch as just as a second as it's taking yes. off, and then the camera pulls back, and you have this huge, huge rocket just shooting towards 
towards the sun with him as this little teeny speck yes. just mm-hmm. grabbed to the back of that. I like it's like a little bit of uh, Doctor Strange love there. He's just strapped <laughs> to the bomb going down. I, right, right, right. A life affirming, a life affirming uh, 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 trip on a rocket. Yes, <laughs> and um, and it like it is um, and it also is like. Yeah, it also reminds me of uh, another Curon uh, movie, uh, Gravity. Like the kind of the sense that he would finally go, the sense that he's. I think that's the kind of the emotional. For me, that's the emotional climax of the movie because I kind of think it, it, it's kind of like how the original, um, not the original, but Carpenter's The Thing was originally like an ensemble, but then they decided that it was better to have a, a central hero like uh like uh, Kurt, played by Kurt Russell McCready be like the leader of it. I kind of think this movie would have helped if it was more along the lines of like that that it was centered on Killian Murphy. I did like the ensemble and and um and but I think if the I think if the story was more about uh, the idea of a dreamer who's like at odds with with both people and his mission who gains a level of a, of of a chance of like touching the infinite and helping out humanity at the same time like Maybe that's kind of like a Malik level self involvement thing, but I could, I think that would have helped the film. Well, you get you definitely get to know him better, which would have had which, yes. which would have increased the investment as, as he goes along his journey. But I also like the way they handled the ensemble. I yes. like the idea that uh, when they had the discussion about whether to have the side mission to uh, to go to the original uh, ship. Um, uh, Murphy's character, who will ultimately have to make the decision because he's a, a physicist, uh, is not even on camera uh, yeah. for for most of that scene. And that, we're, we're great point, great movie. point. Yeah, that was like right. That, those scenes where they're doing the discussions and they're literally talking on the on the very hard scientific topic, something that's actually very relevant to the world today. Of course, like they have limited resources, right. and some people aren't going to make the journey simply because the resources are going to run out. So how do you make these tough decisions? Like, like there was one really great, great sequence during the argument where they say, no, like, uh, no, um, uh, Murphy's Kappa has to survive because he's the only one who knows how to, mm-hmm. to run to. And so he, so there's no vote. It has to be what he, it has to be his decision. And it's such a decision that he has a moment to agonize, but it could have, you know, it was a you, really good dynamic between him and the uh, Chris uh, Chris Evans, Chris Evans yeah. character, or future uh, Captain America, who uh, you know the first time we really see them interacting, they're 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 fighting uh, yeah. over some whatever. That's right. But uh, and you see them kind of disagreeing on so much, but when push comes to shove, you know Evans being kind of the good soldier, you know, kind of understands that the yeah. success or failure is absolutely dependent. It, on, isn't it on kind Murphy. of right. isn't it yeah. kind of funny that you might as well call him Captain America because right. he's not only the American <laughs> contingent, but he behaves in the stereotypical American like like uh, take action first, maybe think about things like not burning <laughs> alive in that uh, mainframe uh, <laughs> system. Uh, uh, think about that later. <laughs> and in fact, like Captain America uses a shield, but his character in the movie is called Mace. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, so, but he's usually right in his arguments, even if it's you know comes off as kind of cocksure and mm-hmm. um, maverick. It, he's you know he's right, right. Uh, on most. Of it. I love. There's so many things. So, I'm, I like I said, I'm not a big fan of the third act. I'm perfectly happy popping this movie in on Blu-ray. By the way, it is gorgeous. Um, popping this movie in and just watching the first two thirds and saying, okay, that was good enough. <laughs> I am totally satisfied because um, I there's so much in here. That discussion 
is so much fun to listen to where, where they fought, first find the Icarus one. And he, he says, we're not going there. Just to make it clear, there is literally nothing more important than the focus of this job. Yeah. And then there's a conversation about, well, maybe there's a reason we should go there. Um, I, I love the way that dynamic works between all of the characters. And I also, as you mentioned, it, it comes down to the Killian Murphy character. It's Kappa's decision. And I love the camera goes to Kappa and he just goes, shit. <laughs> like, I, uh, yes, I'm the guy that has to make this decision. Yeah. God damn it. Um, and uh, there's a couple other things. The Probably one of my, maybe my favorite cinematic moment of all time, certainly in the top five is the the crossing of mercury. Ah. It is it, it's outstanding. It brings chills to my body every every time I think about it, every time I see it. It's just it's so awe-inspiring and so well shot. I feel like I'm there. It, it's so it, I just love that. Shot. I'm a big astronomy guy, like that was my major in college. Mm-hmm. Um and so stuff like that really interests me um yeah it's particularly movies about like i don't i can't think of any other movie like think about all of the science fiction movies even all the shit the b stuff from the 50s and 60s i can't think of any that deal with the sun like it's always about saturn or jupiter or like interstellar um clearly takes you know takes some cues from this movie but it's always looking outward. It's never going inward at this giant fireball at the center of our solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mercury is kind of the same way. It's this little teeny horrible planet that you would never want to visit. Um, and it's always ignored. And that's too bad. And that's what makes, I think, what makes it more interesting is this, is you've never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like that scene. Um Another thing that I wish there was more Michelle Yeoh in this oh, yeah. movie. Like, the two women are not quite given enough. I think this is a male-led cast. It's a male-led story. But those two characters are great. Um, I love the scene with Michelle Yeoh where, like, Chris, like the, oh, they, they shift the shields or whatever. And then the whole ship is creaking and groaning. Yeah. And Michelle Yeoh says something like, oh, that is horrible. And Chris Evans, like, it's just the heat. It's the, 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 it's the girders and the metal contracting. And she just looks at him and she goes, I know what it is, fly boy. <laughs> like, she's this really great, strong character, too. Um, and because she's just the gardener or the botanist or whatever on board, she's not given a whole lot to do. But she's clearly a very strong character and a very strong presence on the ship i kind of wish the script had a little bit more yeah it's kind of funny how like that like what he ultimately failed with uh, garland failed to do with the care at least with the screenplay of the beach he's actually quite a bit more effective with even less screen time with the characters in um uh, sunshine yeah. he through like very small details of like how michelle yo takes care of the plants or how the how the one other engineer like does the cooking like he's able to go and put out, draw out these personalities in a in yeah. a in a very under a very limited time span, it's really really effective, which all just makes this his decision to resort to like having um, Freddy versus Jason in outer space all the more you know inexplicable. Totally. Um, like the Benedict Wong character, um, what do you get three minutes yeah. with him? But it's him 
feeling really bad about screwing everything yeah. up. And it's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful two minutes with Benedict he, Wong. He deliver right. He delivers on that just moment out in uh, like to the full upon that that upon the three minutes that he had. So yeah, Sun, Sunshine has like um, I, I'm totally with you, Andrew, and because I also had an interest in astronomy. That like this is one of the rare science fiction films which turns inward. It's the idea we're going towards the source of towards a source of light and warmth. And, and like, it, I think even from the very first image where, like, you, what you think is the sun turns out to be the giant disc of the, of the ship traveling towards it. It looks, it kind of tries to also, like, look inwards in on, on ourselves, on our kind of, on a, like, our kind of, like, like, global mission and what we need to do in our, like, you know, kind of confined space. That's kind of what makes the kind of hard science look at these things is what makes, uh, you know, space serial killer aside, makes uh, sunshine really work for me. <laughs> and uh, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, well, all, all the things we said, but also, like, it's it's believable. Like, I feel like this is not too far in our future. Not that the sun's going to burn out, but that if the sun did burn out, the technology, um, just the way things look, feel pretty close to now or certainly like in the next 20 years maybe um i love the diverse cast that they put and also as we've kind of said throughout this whole podcast danny boyle clearly has inspirations and i love you can see 2001 in here you can see solaris you can ah. see i don't know like silent running or even alien or something like Definitely that like, Silent running yes um you can see all those influences here, yet it's still Danny Boyle's movie. Um, but I, and if, if nothing else, it just looks great. The the they have the the holodeck, yes. You know the weird green room where they send their messages. Um, the 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 stark darkness contrasted against that bright yellow sun, or whenever it glows or comes through, like. There's so much to love in here. There's literally nothing not to like until that third act. It's so wonderful. Cool. Right. Uh, my favorite moment visually uh, was after uh, after the uh, explosion of the greenhouse, and you see uh, Michelle Yao's character uh, silhouetted, uh, protected by the glass, but explosions all around her. Mm-hmm. And it's done in a really lyrical way, and I think... You know, it's scenes like that and so many scenes uh, from the first uh, part of the movie that, uh, you you know, shows what kind of uh, lyricism uh, this film does have. And uh, I agree with you guys. I mean, it's it's, it's a pertinent message. And, uh, you know, third act problems aside, it's a good one to see. Yeah. And sorry, one last thing, too. I, I like the fact that it shows us how insignificant we are and how small we are um, next to this thing that powers our solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever the camera really goes back and shows us how tiny... One of the scenes I love is when the death of Harvey, he yeah. freezes to death and he's floating out in space. And then once he gets beyond the shield, you just see this little... Right. As he just hits the, I, I love that shot. Yeah, I mean, it just shows you how tiny we all are against this enormity of this thing. Even the spacecraft is just a speck of dust compared to the sun, and I, I love that. And it's also mentioned audibly when they talk about the 
sorry, I'm rambling again about a movie I love. But mm-hmm. when he's talking, when he's looking at the sun and he says, can it get any brighter? Yeah. And she says, right now you're at, you're looking at it at 2.4% or whatever. And it's like, whoa, this is only 2%. Yeah. And then they go to four and it's almost like overwhelming. Like that's science. Right. Um, it's really great. Right. It's kind of, it's kind of really amazing. If you think about it, that like coming from a movie where a person after a movie where a, per- where a kid is visited upon by actual saints <laughs> and has re- <laughs> that he actually may have made his most spiritual movie by, by having a movie which has no overt spirituality on it, uh, on the surface at all. Yeah. And, and after, and after those kind of like celestial, like that, that celestial distance, like he goes back down, down to earth for his, uh, for his next film. Oh, I don't know if, uh, that one's not too spiritual either. After all, it is written. Slumdog Millionaire, um, his most renowned film about a uh, about how um, uh, a game show can help uh, not just solve your problems but help you remember your past life as well. <laughs> or, or maybe I'm being too facetious. It's it um, over because over the course of over the course of a investigation of a guy who's inexplicably getting quote unquote the answers. He's um uh, he finds that those answers were uh, um all these uh messages and things and events that come out from his um from his own life and his uh his relation and his young relationship with his um with his brother and a girl he be- any girl he befriends and what happens to their lives over the course of the next um on I believe nearly like twenty twenty years um just like kind of like in in many senses like a world <laughs> a world uh. uh a, a world arrival for for Danny Boyle. It's hard to look at like the um, the Olympics uh, in uh, the same way, actually. If if it was not for Slumdog Millionaire, yeah, and then using the game show also as a as a plot device at the end too, like the whole phone a friend. Um, like the there's a there's the overarching story of we're going through this guy's life through the questions on the show, but also in in terms of the show itself, there's also kind of a story going on there about like police brutality and the cheating. And he's still trying to find the girl. Like we kind of catch up. The rest of the movie is catching up to the now. And then we continue on for the last five minutes or so. Yeah. I mean, it might be really interesting if there was actually a cut where if there was actually some sort of mini cut, which only consists of um, the main character of, of Dev Patel's character's, encounters on the game show because i think i think i think you're right andrew there is some drama totally going on there like it's not um it's uh not um an accident that like the game show host seems to have it in for him from the very beginning (laughs) 
Which is you mean Indian Peter Sarsgaard? That's right. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, which which in in general like game show terms would doesn't quite make sense, but in terms of like the sense that it's some sort of like mirror of mirror of like the the social um, of some uh, of society going on in, at the time that is kind. I think that is trying to be an indicator. Well, what's a game show trying to do uh, is to create suspense on a television entertainment level. Yet yeah. in Boyle's hands, it creates actual suspense in the way it cuts from the questions. I mean, you have the inherent suspense of will he be able to answer the question, even though through the prologue we already know the answer to that, you're still uh, at that kind of moment of, well, will he get it? Will he get it? And and it's just pure directorial <laughs> yeah. skill that lets that continue, even though we already know the answer. Yeah. Um, and then as you build into these, uh, the plots of the, of the kids on the streets and uh, the hard life they have to live, um, and and you see the kind of Oliver Twist like gang uh, that they end up uh, they end up with, and how he escapes that fate. It, it it ends up being a pretty epic story. Yeah, it's um up like it's kind of <laughs> it now just hits me that it's kind of an anti Zen. There's kind of an anti Zen thing going on with the title because because with the movie Slumdog, Danny Boyle answers the question who wants to be a millionaire a question that no one actually ever really seriously asked <laughs> it's like man i want to be a millionaire that's and, why i watch money isn't even that important to him which i think is a great touch i mean he, he certainly wouldn't mind the idea but uh you know this is such a idealized love story that uh that the fact that his motivation of being on the on the show is specifically so that uh the girl he loves might hear might watch and right. uh, know how to find him and that they could reconnect yeah the one, some of the things in the movie that get me that actually got me more interested in the story is in fact how his behavior is not matching the typical behavior of someone on the show who really would agonize those those decisions on the show like where you give your money away to try to go for double or nothing are like the most agonizing moments when the show actually happens where he is completely like, look, I don't know the answer. <laughs> and he'll, he'll, he'll admit as such. So it's like, so that to me lends an air of mystery, kind of a rare air of mystery, honestly, to his character. <laughs> Because right, he wants to stay on the show as long as possible. Right. Because the longer he's on the show, the more popular it'll get and the more the chances are of she's watching somewhere yes. in the world. So why would you stop and take the money? Because then you're off the show. You might as well play. Right. And try to keep going mm-hmm. right, if you don't care about the money. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In this case, it's actually like a, a kind of a very successful move in the script. A very – like I agree with Brad. It's a very good innovation to make – the show itself a framing device that in and of itself contains its own mini drama <laughs> involving like deception and so what mm-hmm. and, and brutality and what have you. But then also like how it hides that fact of why what's keeping him on? What's keeping him going when he's not behaving like an ordinary an ordinary contestant? He's not, you know, he's not deferring to the host's jokes. He's not um uh, he's not spending an agonizing amount of time talking up his choices. And so it lends a what is this guy's story, which drives in when the flashback is, it gives you these, it gives you these pieces. Now, yeah. now, I mean, uh, so, so uh, like, are you guys, do you guys like, um, did you guys find that his story when he does get flashback gets revealed is, uh, is compelling and 
He has a has a kind of an arc and development to it. I, I do. I mean, I I don't. I actually don't take away a lot from this movie. Like, I don't find it particularly profound or a lot of maybe double meaning or philosophical. Maybe there is. Maybe there's stuff in there that I'm missing. But mostly it's just a compelling, interesting, dramatic, action-packed story of this kid's life that you can't look away from. Despite the fact that he's covered in shit, um, literally, at one point, like, it... Yeah. it it's just a it's just a compelling love story. I mean, it's kind of like, eh, I, I don't know. I was gonna say it's kind of like Titanic, where you know where it's gonna end up. Um, there's nothing. There's no meaning. There's no special philosophical anything. It's just a really compelling love story in this horrible, depraved world that he happens to live in, and we're watching it all through the eyes of a game show. Um, so I don't know. Did you guys, am I missing something? I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying for me, that story is compelling enough and looks good enough. And she's gorgeous enough to make it believable. Right. Um, Frito can, Frito can go, uh, is, uh, Frida Pinto does a great job of making you want, uh, (laughs) to appear, reappear as often as possible. Yes. Right. You know, I, um, I, I don't think it is terribly profound but i don't think it's meant to be i think uh right. it, it is very loyal to its influences and it's, it's a love letter to indian cinema and i think a lot of the uh callbacks uh when he's a child are to the more realistic uh indian films that uh film buffs tend to gra- gravitate uh towards uh by satyajit ray and, and and other films like that but at its heart it's a bollywood film or it's the British take on a Bollywood film. Uh, it ha- if it were a real Bollywood film, it had would have a lot more songs. But uh, but yeah. but as it is, that kind of uh, you know it's all, like an old style Hollywood musical. It is uh, looking for more escapism uh, than anything else, especially in contrast to the reality yeah. of the uh, of the, the child's growing up you kind of head um, based on its genre towards a a Hollywood ending, or in this case, yeah. a, a Bollywood ending. And I think taken on that level, uh, at, it, it really works. Uh, up at, through the, the, the end credits, which is a full-blown uh, Bollywood uh, musical number, that, that not only entertains on a, in and of itself, but also kinds of tells us, this is the kind of movie we've been trying to be all along. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's uh, I'm yeah, I'm kind of in in, so, in one way I'm actually kind of offended by this movie. It's because mm. it is um because honestly, I think like it's it's one thing to go and say a b c d and d it is written and I kind of think the message if you really look at the implications of what it's saying, it's kind of like the um Justification for almost every reality show that has plagued us on, um, infected or not on, on, on television out to this day. This whole idea that like, that, that not just the game show, I mean, my God, would it kill you to be on a game show just to get a lot of money and then to use the money? See, the thing is, is if it just, if he just went on the game show to make a lot of money and use the money to try and get his girl and, and help his brother or what have you, that's just one thing. You can, and you can say, well, maybe he's justifying it for himself. But it's the idea that, like, 
that the show and everyone watching the show validates him as a person because the answers, just the fact that the answers come from his own life, is what it's saying is, you know what? You get on TV and you win this prize because you and every single thing that happened in your life is the thing that gets this, is the thing that gets you value. And if, and it, therefore, it, therefore your success on TV is a vindication of you as a human being, which I find mm. kind of repugnant. I don't think the movie's really saying that though. I, I don't think he's vindicated because of being on TV. I think he's vindicated because he will let nothing get in his way of of pursuing his love. And but what gets that, him further is these details that only he has. Right, right. They're, yeah. they're, they're plot elements. And, you know, it, it's the conceit of the film that he will know these answers because they are parts of his life, which lets us see his life. It's part of the what I think is the originality of his screenplay. But I, I don't think... The movie is actually taking the idea of being in t- on television so seriously because I don't think it, he it takes it. It literally that has everybody except from Coruscant watching him, <laughs> including <laughs> including in, in what should be actually offensive in any dimension. The people are outside the Taj Mahal, one of the greatest landmarks mm-hmm. of all time. And they're watching. They're watching this guy's story on on a on a on a fifteen inch set. Right. He's using the medium. The medium is not validating him. He's using the medium for a higher goal. Also, keep in mind, the people in the movie that are watching him are not watching his story. They're just watching the show, just like we did. Like, this show in 2000 and... Well, this movie's 2008, but I remember in America in about 2000 and... 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere in there, this show was hugely yeah. popular. Um, like, everybody was watching this. And in the in the context of this film, it's a, it's a kid who grew up in the slums, and now he's just serving coffee at whatever. And the people want to see this kid make a million dollars. Like, they want this to happen. Um, it'll be sort of a vindication for poor people everywhere if this kid can make the money. So is that kind of what you're saying? Is that like it, it's sort of saying that money is what's important? And yeah, um, I think if I think if the idea that I think if the idea that the money was was most important, it would actually be more. It would actually be more more honest. But but instead, it kind of caters the idea that like that the idea that these insignificant details in a person's life will go our stuff which will get the whole world to admire and follow you is what drives so much stuff about like um drives so much of like the what passes for our culture today honestly and like the idea like like you know the more outrageous you get the more the like the more crazy details you do upon your own life but hey if it gets you uh, thousands of followers and 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 thousands of likes then ta da you are you are a star you are a celebrity so I mean, and how many how many quote unquote mm. celebrities do we have? Like, heck, we have a whole we have a whole family <laughs> whose entire thing is like to go through the mundane parts of their life, and they get and they get millions for their trouble. But but and, the motivation I think you're describing more uh, applies to the game show host than to Jamal. All these things are important to the game show host, which is why it's in his interest that it remains his show, and that if Jamal wins, uh wins it all then you know he be, he starts to outshine the host which is why he starts to intervene 
and tries to twi- trick him into getting the wrong answer. So uh, all these things are true in the case of a character that we do not sympathize with, but I don't think they're true from Jamal's point of view, and he's the character that we're following. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I guess ultimately one of the things that like let, doesn't let me doesn't let me in, let me be as receptive to the movie is that the love story maybe is kind of a little more typical Bollywood or more political, more typical like romantic comedy love at first sight. Oh, this person, this. This uh, little child that you see when you were seven, when you were like five or six—that's your soulmate for life. Which is like, okay, man. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, I can see if you can't uh, get on board with that, then the rest will will be yes, a problem. Exactly. <laughs> that that very well that very well could go and like like if you. I mean, I mean, I mean, what do you guys think on that? I mean, is it like does it like do buy into that romance, or is like just the fact that it's Frida Pinto? At that train station, that's enough. That's but like it wasn't the, even her throughout the movie. We see right. the, we see three uh, sets of actors playing the the first as young children, mm-hmm. then as uh, preteens, then then as uh, uh, teens. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and here's the other know, thing. Here's, here's the, the other question thing of is that is is it a believable romance? I think the answer is. Are you going to buy into the genre or not? Well, yeah, uh, it's, be- it's a fairy tale. This is a <laughs> yes. fairy tale. I mean, yeah. is it a believable romance? No, probably not. But in terms of like the, the, the childhood sweetheart, and you grow up, and all you and you keep getting separated, and it's so frustrating for the audience. It's kind of this like almost Disneyfied fairy tale. Um, yeah, like the 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 yes, I mean. At- I think this is a case where actually, like, where, where you guys may have had some issues with some of Boyle's earlier films. I'm kind of getting some major problems in this one on a tonal shift of action because, because Boyle, like, Boyle, the fan of, like, kind of roguish notions of right and wrong, is actually an effect in a lot of in the movie. Like, like when they're on the train and they're doing all the different hustles, stealing all of people's shoes, mm-hmm. like, having the American's car get completely, like, <laughs> completely, like, taken apart. And like that, that attitude of like, hey, you know, you're just doing what you, you're doing what you can to try and make it in this particular world. That's like, that's a kind of nice, robust, uh, robust, like kind of complex view of like what it takes that environment. And then when like, also like in the surprising moves that like Boyle has done in his earlier films, when Boyle wants to go dark, even in something like Millions where it doesn't work, but here I think it does really work when it's like. If you want to really degrade a kid, you have that <laughs> that outhouse sequence, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. And when when you find out what they do to the other kids to make them more mm-hmm. sympathetic, that's legit. Even though it's not really gory, it is horrifying what happens what is there. Implied. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. And into this into this is this Dudley Do Right chump who is so like innocent that he might as well be the donkey from all hazard balthazar he is like like he is such a wide-eyed goody two-shoes nebbish on the on the whole deal that like i don't buy that he could have existed for five minutes in the, in the actual rest of the world and the rest of the environment well he had his brother protecting him that's for, right uh, for yeah. a, bit of the a couple film. a couple yeah. times actually yeah. you know but then like boy is you know the brother relationship that is one which i really i really am interested in because the way his brother does support him but then also does him wrong really badly on three or four different occasions right. you know is i mean that particular relationship is i think really is really interesting and, and honestly i'd kind of like you know 
I kind of like want to follow his <laughs> follow his journey. Maybe on the uh, Indian version of Wheel of Fortune. Or I something. love the scene when they uh, reunite <laughs> as adults, and yes. uh, and and Jamal's anger is so palpable, and, and his brother's actually a little surprised by that right. because he doesn't see what he did as much as a betrayal as Jamal saw it. Yeah, right. And he's so angry he attacks him twice. Right, right. <laughs> they have him, like, uh, get, off, get off the building the one time, <laughs> the first time it happened. Then, of course, it's like he gets to, he gets to punch him for real, you know? And then, and so, so I mean, um, in yeah. terms... Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. Oh, I, I was going to say that in terms of that relationship, like, the Salim character, I always found him as... Um, he's very selfish. Like, he wants to keep... Jamal, like, you're my brother, you're mine. Hmm. We're in this together forever. We're brothers. Nothing's going to, like, but at the same time, I don't think he, I don't think he realizes that he's being maliciously selfish. He, you know, when they, when he lets the girl go on the train, he doesn't really understand the implications and the feelings that his brother has. He thinks that this is just the best way to keep us together. And that's that I, who cares about her in a day? You'll forget about it. Yeah. Um, he's an, he's an asshole and he's really frustrating, but I don't think he sees himself that way. He doesn't understand that he's that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can, I can see, I mean, I have a measure of sympathy for Salim in the sense that like Salim is doing what he feels he needs to do to go and, um, to go and survive in that, and, in that, and like, and that he also feels that his, and partly it's a relation because his brother is such a wide-eyed chump who will wander into a, a certain doom, like, if he takes a, if, if, if he takes a wrong step, and like, um, and so, so he's really, pro- he's really protective, but I think you make a really interesting point that it's like, that it's a kind of a, possession that he almost that in a way that kind of level of affection to his brother becomes like a level of like just something he can own something he, he can control you know and also he's he's part of the the crime scene uh he is looking for more practical ways to get ahead if he were on uh the game show it would be all about the money for him right yeah uh, mm-hmm. and then you know that's kind of uh shown uh in his death scene where uh, yeah. he is uh gunned down in a bathtub full of money <laughs> yeah that's right i don't i don't know how you guys took it me i was like uh boy i wonder if the director's cut is like you know is an extra you know two minutes so it's 20 percent more metaphoric <laughs> come on oh sorry don't don't open the door yet it's not metaphoric enough <laughs> one of one of the things i liked um back to sort of the questions and about recounting his life and stuff i like that none of the questions were this big like prof not, profound isn't the right word, but they they aren't. They're details, yes. very small details, except for that last question. Mm-hmm. Like I remember being in the theater when they say, "Okay, the three musketeers are Orthos, Porthos, and what's the third one?" And everybody in the theater went, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's the you know because it's this big recall to when they were kids and they were the three musketeers or whatever." Yeah, but all of the other questions are just these little tiny little things um that don't so when he recalls it in fact on a couple of them i didn't even get the connection with the question always there was a couple where i was like wait uh, okay you just told a whole story there how does he know uh who's on the dollar bill or whatever it is well isn't Um, the difference that in all the other questions we get the question first and then the backstory. And then the story. But on the Three right. Musketeers yeah. question, we've already seen the backstory. Exactly. Yeah. Which, it's so Hollywood, mm-hmm. or Bollywood, <laughs> maybe yes. in this case. But it, it's such a like Hollywood script 
mm-hmm. thing. But I actually really like that. I like that, that the other questions were just these little tiny details. And if you think about it, everything you know, well, maybe not everything, but when it's these sort of little trivia questions like this, you probably do know the answer. If you do know the answer, it is probably from some little tidbit that you happen to ride the train every day past this billboard right? and it had this thing yes. on it. That's how you know stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of believable. When he's being questioned by the... So there's the whole torture scene and then he's being interrogated and everything. I like the the, the one question the police officer asks him... Uh, who's on the back of the Indian 20 rupees or whatever. And it's Gandhi. And he's like, Oh, I didn't know that. And he's like, how could you not know that five-year-old children know that? And he comes back with, do you know who stole the Jimmy's bike on fifth street in 1985? And he's like, no. And he's like, everybody else does, including Mm five-year-olds. So like, it's all about your, I kind of like the idea of the whole movie is, Everything you know is based on your experience. Get out there. Have experience. Live life. Even if you're poor and in the slums or you're rich as hell, experience as much life as you can. It may benefit you in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I just found that just like I found that particular detail just a little a, a little too self-flattering. The idea that like, oh my god, I, oh my god, I put like jam before my peanut butter on my sandwich. Now I should, now I should get ten thousand dollars. You know, like, like some of those, some of those details like were like at really, uh, like important moments. But some of them were so, so trivial and such a thing that like a person would not necessarily remember. Except, of course, for the random, you know, of course our brains work like we don't, we have some. We remember things that we have very little control over what we remember, you know. That's true. Yep. So, so it's um, uh, uh, but, but in terms of like now, it was an uh, now this film was a multiple Oscar winner out in the um, uh, and do you guys feel that this is that this is worthy for either as an Oscar movie or as kind of one of the superior movies of uh, two thousand eight? You know, we we could have a whole special episode about bonus uh, episode, bon- yeah, bonus <laughs> episode about uh, the Oscars and all all that is wrong with them. And uh, okay, bonus uh, episodes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but 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 here here's the thing: if we're if we kind of say, well, what what do the Oscars like? What what kind of movies do win Academy Awards? They're probably not going to be the movies we would choose. But with all the the kind of missteps and and wrong choices they've made for best picture i think this was actually a, a pretty good choice i think it recognized uh great filmmaking uh, just on a on a kinetic level of what danny boyle does i think this is a a, a great visual um step for for danny boyle to work in this uh bollywood style and it it does what 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 you know what you're saying might be bothering you which is kind of the uh you know the fairy taleness of it is something that would appeal to uh to oscar voters so yeah. uh you know when i look at uh who's won oscars over the last uh yeah. 20 years i'm actually thinking slumdog millionaire yeah, it, is one of the better choices yeah it kind of to me it kind of like fits the two two of the ver- two of the check boxes that like fit fit oscar winning movies in that like it's hey look at these foreign people look how nice we are by giving them american entertainment that lets them fulfill their dreams um all they needed to do was to help fight the nazis and they would have kind of got a trifecta in my opinion 
I mean, I mean, the, there's no getting around that this is a British film about India and not an actual Indian film. True. Yeah. True. Right. Um, and the Oscars tend to just they tend to award filmmakers who are deserving, but then sort of award them for the wrong thing. Very true. <laughs> like Scorsese or whatever. Um, I don't know though. As much as I love Danny Boyle, I don't know how many of his films. Maybe maybe there's one coming up we'll talk about that could be worthy. But I don't know how many of them are actually I would consider best films of the year. Now, the nominees that year were The Reader, <laughs> Milk, Frost Nixon, yeah. and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, right. which is horrible. They chose so, I mean, right. that's a <laughs> Yes. There's no question there which film is the best one. Like, I like Frost Nixon and Milk and The Reader. They're fine. I mean, Slumdog, Millionaire, even if you don't think that's the right choice, it's clearly the one that the Academy is going to nom- or mm-hmm. give the award to, I think, yeah. in that I mean, when you when you put it when you're out, when you put it against those other films as a nomination, like I think it kind of gets both categories as being the best film of that bunch, right? And the film that would most like cater to what academies would wish to promote for themselves. But it, he also got the he got the director that year too yeah. against all of the same exact same directors for the same movies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 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 and and and, 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 and yeah, I, I'm with I'm with Brad Desert, and it's kind of like. He does have he did have an assured level of direction on on here. He's able to bring out suspense really well. He has this very interesting way of showing like horrific events and not putting in judgment upon one side or another while mm-hmm. like I mean he even gives the I mean he even gives the um the guy who did the like blinding like a moment mm-hmm. before 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 what happens to him. So he like um he manages to make and he manages to maintain this tone and like and it is kind of does a balancing act between the kind of very real or the realism of the flashback scenes and then the the fantasy of this of the game show drama. Right. I think I think there's tension there. Yeah. Um, also, the use of color uh, in this movie is is very well done. There, the, uh, it shows what a lot of Bollywood films have is these uh, festivals where people uh, basically pour colored uh, powder all over the place. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and somebody like Danny Boyle who likes to go as big as possible. This this kind of material is just perfect for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was like, I think this is a very much of a, of a training ground for for like what is to come in him for him for the near future. But before before that before like before that those events happen, he made a a, a little a much smaller scale film um, uh, called 127 Hours about a very Adventure, uh, a very adventurous outdoorsman and uh, um, uh, named Aaron Ralston, who um, found his like arm caught um, while exploring some canyons with uh, no help for miles and miles around, and he has to make some agonizing decisions over what he needs to do to what he needs to do to survive. Um, and it goes in, all, and it's interesting that how like like how in Slumdog. It uses a show as a framing device. Here, it almost uses a single outcropping as a sing a single location. Another single location becomes the framing device, doesn't it? Right, and then they mm-hmm. have he has to struggle to open the film up, uh, so it's not just you know wa- watching uh, James Franco uh, stuck by a rock for an hour and a half. That would be um, Jerry, right? Right. <laughs> 
So I, I, I have some, some issues with this one. I think, uh, I think, I think it's a challenging prospect for any director to try to make a film about this subject matter when, uh, when you do have, you know, the staticness of it, that, that this, this guy cannot leave his space. What I think Boyle does wrong here is uses his flashiness here in a way that's not appropriate to the material. He, he has scenes that almost look like music videos and scenes that so call attention to themselves, like when he's drinking uh, his last drop of drink from the thermos and you, you, you get to see his tongue just, you know, in <laughs> gigantic proportions go into the thermos. And I'm just like, all right, I, I see what you're trying to do. You, you've got this great style and you're trying to apply it to this story but does it really apply to the story or is it taking away from it a bit? Hmm. I, I, I bought into it quite a little bit, a, a little bit more than, than, than you did. Like, and I like, like, like you said, we, you need to see, you had to have some necessity towards like being able to be more dynamic than to just show, than to just show a single person, uh, like in a single location. And, um, and, but, uh, but I was like, but I kind of, Felt that the the maneuver worked a little a little bit better for me because each particular I mean each particular detail for the most part especially when the flashing back like 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 taught me a little bit more about taught me a little more about like about um uh, the the guy and his and what 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 kind of got him to this place you know so it it each one did it I think was so, did such a uh, a decent enough job of of flushing out his character a little bit more that kept me kept me interested more interested personally. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, when I said at the outset of this show, uh, one of the things I always like about Danny Boyle is his ability to surprise me, and his last two films in particular really surprised me. I didn't have much interest in going to see 127 Hours, um, but I'm like, okay, it's, it's just about a guy stuck to a rock. It sounds like one of these, maybe it would be on, you know, primetime network television movie of the week kind of things mm -hmm. on at seven o'clock on Tuesday night. Right. Um, but it's Danny Boyle. So I, I'm going to go check it out. And I was really surprised all of that dazzling, if you want to call it that camera work um, and how they make a really interesting story, or at least interesting to me in this really boring setting. Like it's just, everything's Brown. It's this one spot yet. You go. I love going in that water bottle. It it makes me thirsty. Um, I love the sort of he makes a TV show out of the whole situation. He's got his camera there. Yeah. Um, I let and then all of the regret that he goes over, all these things that he did wrong that he could have done. The whole idea of this pompous guy really being put into his place is like, oh, you're not as fucking cool as you thought you were, are you? And that realization. Like all of that stuff really elevates this film from oh it's just a guy, you know, with his arm caught in a rock for two hours. Um, mm -hmm. I I really was surprised coming away with this, and I think Boyle's flair is what makes this this experience pretty visceral for the audience. I think like using audio cues, using different film stock, using. Um, interesting editing techniques, putting the camera in weird spots, 
all of these, it's all direction that make this interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, like, right, his camera use is, like, his camera use by showing the different parts of the landscape, so, and especially how it, like, curves around, um, around, um, uh, Aaron Ralston's body to, like, sometimes to make it look like the cave itself is actively trying to oppress him, like the outcroppings are, <laughs> are blocking out the, blocking out the sky in some, in, in some sequences, and the ones showing how far isolated he is, he's, like, literally in a little hole that is, like, just flat for, like, my, flat for, like, miles around. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, one thing that I personally really, uh, I really like about it is, is the, is his recordings on the, is his recordings because it's something that like, something that Boyle and a lot of art, other artists who were like working in the night, started in the nineties would be doing, which is that they, they had a real level of awareness that different kinds of media, well, you know, you're uh, like, like film, high def digital, low def digital, they, they hit us in different ways, right? We kind of get a little bit of an effect nowadays when films like Lord of the Rings and uh, Billy Lynn's halftime walk is now filmed in a, incredibly high shutter speed so that like um so it look it looks different and they were and and Boyle when he got started with Shell if you look at like Shallow Grave and and um and his other early films he does kind of aware that he puts in like video stuff mm-hmm. and it's there for a specific reason because you're meant to appreciate it in a different way and 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 it's another kind of way of looking at the film and what the film what the very you know atoms of the film or digital is trying to tell you right and i kind of think the video is is trying to do that the sim- similar way i think it works up to a certain point mm. uh for instance i like uh when he uh watches the footage uh, with the two girls he met with uh, earlier and they uh, jumped uh, into, yes. the, into the into the pool and uh, uh, that, that that scene I, I, I thought was uh, not, provided nice character touches yes uh, and, and like and, and although mm-hmm. the one thing I didn't like was, was actually something Andrew you were more fond of was was that game show bit uh, I'm sorry the, the yeah when he uh, the video game I'm sorry yeah the, the video game bit yeah. when he starts to uh, hallucinate more and then we end up in uh kind of watching him play host to to interviewing himself yeah mm-hmm. i that that to me just felt a little bit mannered um would it help you if you thought that this was a, a idea that james franco would have thought up <laughs> i don't know <laughs> See, that's, that's the other question is uh, you know at least from my point of view who wasn't blown away by this is would this have worked better with another actor although james franco really does uh, embody the whole kind of idea of this kind of, you know, Devil adventuresome guy who wouldn't tell people when he yes. was going out because he was just that cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, he, and the other thing you, you mentioned that, that I, I think is, is true is just as the setting has its limitations, it also provides opportunities. So you're in this beautiful uh, area so every time we leave him under the rock and see where he's at or the flashback to the scene where the uh the giant rock that that he's yes. hiking in and with with uh and is precariously just uh sitting there on the ledge it, it, it has some uh great visual content to it mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it gives a level of like precariousness before the even the, the dire event has happened as does the jump into the water because that's right the way that is filmed is we don't see what what's below them, so yeah. it's, it, we're kind of with the characters and wondering, you know, how that yeah. uh, is going to go. Yeah, it's uh, that's why that video. I think the video of the of him with it, the girls 
is such a great it was such a good move a great necessary contrast because when you when we first see it it's our view when we see it there it's his view Mm -hmm. or our view we're kind of i mean at least for me i was felt like really threatened like oh my god what did you what'd you do what'd you do for him it's the most natural thing in the world right so the idea of like different media to show different perspectives is a really cool one and one i'm i'm happy to see him you know return to in 100 127 hours as for the game show thing, I wonder who did think. I wonder who did like uh, think that up. <laughs> did it work? I don't. I mean, it, I mean, it's all based on real, obviously real events. Maybe that's not made up, right? I don't know. I mean, and if so, like, is there Aaron Ralston video? Did he have a video camera and he videotaped himself at the time? I heard and we can he, maybe see it even on YouTube. I don't know. <laughs> I, I heard I heard he did do that. Like I I did hear that he um that Ralston did make video of uh, that did make some video with the camcorder he had. Whether he wants to like you know uh, reveal it on YouTube Release or give it, it to Werner yeah. Herzog or what have you is like I don't know about that. But he did. But it actually is based upon Ralston's nonfiction book. So um right. so and it, I that's I, I, so this whole time I've been railing about. Boyle sort of not dealing with the main character losing their mind very well. Yeah. I don't know. In this case, it's it's a little more restrained and a little bit more believable, and I kind of like it. I kind of like that he starts talking to himself and, well, how can I make talking to myself more interesting? And he, you know, he turns it into interviewing himself. I don't know. It works for me. I think maybe it's Franco... Um, as a lead, he's pretty hit or miss for me yeah. in most stuff. Like sometimes he's really great, sometimes eh. I think he's pretty he's pretty great here. Um, yeah, Franco's a really Franco's <laughs> a really interesting, very interesting actor to me because he he kind of can be off putting because he kind of comes across as like a Renaissance man of schlock I, by taking college courses and appearing on soap operas and what have you. But yeah. but I, you know sometimes like in this movie and then there's one particular movie that came out a couple of years ago where he was like uh, where he was a killer and 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 um and there was a reporter trying to uh, um interview him um and where he does really really great and i think he does i think he does really great here and i think it's also an example of really good casting because there is a kind of sense of like self involvement for franco mm-hmm. you know a, a sense of like self indulgent which obviously fits the character he's playing quite well and then also just the idea that like franco would go into all these different directions to entertain or or keep himself motivated does yeah. i mean it it's i do buy him i do buy him going even as far as game show standards in it like although <laughs> because yeah i mean how else are you going to portray all this stuff to us the audience as being interesting it's a right it's a tough mission yeah, yeah. so you got to do something there and i i like this and he sl- he has the revelation to himself while he's you know interviewing himself he, you know, I love again with with Boyle and the, his screenplays. There's always like one or two lines that I always love, and in this one, it's isn't it true that you didn't tell anyone where you were going because you think you're so cool or whatever? And then he and then he goes, "Oops!" <laughs> like just the yeah. way he delivers it, yes. I I really like that a lot. Yeah. Now imagine Leonardo DiCaprio in that environment, yeah. and he's like, "No." I realized this too late. Ah! Oh, he would have shooed the rock with his uh, sheer will. He would have chewed the rock off. That's what he would have done. <laughs> Which, speaking of, but but speaking on that note, like when you saw, so, uh, I think Brad, you brought up the audio. Like 
audio has been so good at like, he Boyle's been good at audio through all the films. Like his use of the score has been great. But to me, I think maybe one of his finest audio achievements is right at that point where he needs to Ugh. cut off the nerve. Ugh. And every time he even touches it, you get <laughs> a particular high piercing shriek. And I don't even I'm not even sure if you actually severs that in on screen, but you hear it God <laughs> and you dang get it. Yep. Yeah, I, oh. it's, it's visceral. You get exactly. Uh, yeah. You get the, the bone break. Yeah. yeah, you you get the gist of what's happening. Right. You know, like when that electric guitar or whatever that's out of tune and just goes clang. Yep, that's yep. what it feels like. It it's one of the best audio achievements of all time. It's so. <laughs> it's so I, yeah. great. I was just thinking, what what, what would it be? Because I think most people were aware of, of this story before the film came out, and it, it made mm. all the. The news of the, for the sensationalism of it, and uh, man, mm-hmm. you know, cutting off his own arm. And, yeah. And, um, I wonder how much of a different viewing experience this would have been if we didn't know that. Right. If we came into this not knowing how it would end. That that might that. I mean, it's it's, it's yeah. impossible to say, but yeah. uh, it could have been a very different experience. Yeah. Right. I mean, like I think what Hitchcock said, like the difference between like um, a, a thriller and suspense is like a thriller is like two people are sit at a dinner and then uh, there's a bomb underneath and it blows up mm-hmm. and a suspense is the exact same thing but you know the bomb is there and it doesn't stuff. blow up <laughs> right and and so yeah and so that's yeah i mean that's a really uh, that's a really really interesting question um like it would it i mean would it have helped i think honestly i think honestly it was it works better for me i think if it, that you know to me it works better that you know because it's it's not necessarily about what the guy has to leave behind in a physical sense. It's about what he want needs to pick up in a, in a um, emotional sense, in a social sense, you know? So you need to see the stakes, you know, you need to see what he needs to do. So, so if you know that there is no escape apart from this inevitable mm-hmm. outcome, I think that helps the drama of the story. And that's, that's how I take it. Okay. I also think, I don't know how believable it would be if you didn't know, because it's a pretty outlandish thing right. that happens. And the fact that we know for a fact that this actually happened, you go into the movie and go, okay, great. If if you didn't know that, you would go, you might watch this and go, that's such bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, he, nobody would ever cut their arm off. Right. I, I have the same problem with uh, whatever that movie is about compliance, about the movie where the, the girl is sexually assaulted. Right. You know, in the back of the McDonald's or whatever, you're watching that movie going, This is absolutely ridiculous. Who wrote this shit? It's such, right? N- not, this would never happen. Yeah. But the fact that it is pretty much exactly what happened yeah. is what makes it good. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point because, because while Boyle doesn't show the worst things about cutting your arm off, he shows enough. He shows, him, yeah. he shows enough. Yeah, and if you didn't, pretty bad. and if you were thinking in the back of your mind that that was something that, he could have avoided doing, then it becomes a Verhoeven like overindulgence in, in, in yeah. visceral, you know, like shock value. And then it becomes, I think it kind of diminishes it as a result. Like, I mean, yep. ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, like the one, the one thing that kind of, the one thing that does a minor blemish on the film for me is that like at the end, it makes a nice point about like, oh, he's still going out backpacking. Which is like well, you that's know, just true. It's, it was yeah, the, the, it's, that footage at the yeah. end was of the real guy. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's true, but then okay, the fact that you leave a note is like 
that's not going to help you when you're when you fall off a cliff, okay? <laughs> you know, if you fall on the cliff the wrong way, let's say, you know, and it's not a Danny and it's not a Danny Boyle movie. Hopefully, he learned the buddy system. Well, that's what I'm saying. It says he left a note, but it actually, I don't think it says he. I'm not sure if it says it travels with buddy and 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 um, online people, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But it came it came across to me when I last saw the movie that like it's like. Like, after the movie did, and I think it's because the movie did such a good job at showing, you know, he learned his lesson. He really needs people. He needs to go and be more connected to his family and so forth. Like, no, I got to get to that canyon. <laughs> That's more important, you know? <laughs> so, um, uh, so it's, um, uh, so, uh, I mean, ultimately, I think, uh, um, I think it's kind of like still a real, quite a successful film. And Brad, you're a little less so. Right. Well, I didn't, and, I didn't hate it or anything. Yeah. I just think it's more somewhere in the middle, uh, in the, in the Danny Boyle, uh, uh gotcha. filmography. And, and Andrew, where do you think it fits? Um, if I were actually, it's funny. If I were ranking all my Boyle films, this would be fourth. Okay. <laughs> so top four. So you also, oh, so you're really, oh, so you're quite right after like 20, uh, right after like 28 days later in sunshine and so on. Sunshine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right on that level. All right. And, uh, and one that has not been mentioned yet. <laughs> right. Very well. But wait, before we, but, but before we get to that, there's Boyle had some really interesting career detours before he got, which I think is worthy for us to, to bring up. Like, um, Andrew, you had mentioned, um, that there, he did a horror, uh, version, but on a pl- in a in a play format, right? Right, and I, I uh, it's, it might still be going on. Actually, I'm not sure, but um, and it did play like they filmed it, and it did play theatrically, and it's his version of Frankenstein. Um, but yeah, it was on Broadway or the play format or whatever, and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch ah. and Johnny Lee Miller. And what was interesting about it is. I don't know if it was every other night or what it was, but they would alternate roles. So if you bought a ticket for this thing on Tuesday, Benedict Cumberbatch would be playing Dr. Frankenstein and Johnny Lee Miller would be the monster. Maybe on Thursday night you go again and they've flipped roles. Um, And I think that's pretty interesting. Now, unfortunately, it did play in theaters around here. It was brief. Like maybe it was like one of those one night only things. I didn't get to go, but you can look up clips and behind the scenes stuff on YouTube and it looks pretty amazing. Um, it looks like a great set. It's, it's got Danny Boyle sort of flair to it. And then you've got these two guys, which is interesting because obviously Benedict Cumberbatch is like thespian level superb actor. And then you don't really think of Johnny Lee Miller other than hackers (laughs) and train spotting. Maybe, you know, like he's just not, you wouldn't think of him as this great stage actor, but apparently their chemistry together is wonderful. And, uh, the play has done very well. And I really wish I could have seen it. Hmm. Makes me, do you, by any chance do you have, uh, did you hear if it, they're trying to try to make that into a film? My understanding is that Boyle wanted to do, he's wanted to do the film for a long time. Um, but I don't know for whatever reason it just didn't work. I don't know if the studios don't want to do it or or what the deal is. So he this is was his compromise. Hmm. 
maybe making a sequel to a successful movie will uh, will allow him the, to do uh, that. Yeah, well, that's maybe. that's true. And plus, they're but they've been trying to like reboot Frankenstein a couple times. Well, they've done um, it a bunch of times. Usually, yes. mostly not to good effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as as a lesson of the first Frankenstein movie, sometimes you got to shock it a couple right. times before 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 you get it right. I have to say that innovation is a really really interesting, and I'm and it's the fact that it works that well is all the more remarkable since. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is clearly a lizard person who is not from this planet. Like, <laughs> so, um, he's, uh, but the idea that, like, the, the monster and creator, like, can alternate on there, like, almost makes you want to be the first case where you want to buy tickets to a movie, right? Two days in a row. Yeah. Because, absolutely. Because you get enhanced by seeing the contrast almost as much as in the individual performance. Right. Yeah. And then, and then I also, I also think it's kind of important to bring up, like, what might be, like, at least in the, world stage like his uh, boyle's most like public like showcase which his masterful job of making of uh doing the opening ceremonies for the olympics right like it is um i can tell uh it is available at the moment actually on youtube and it's actually quite marvelous because he's um over the span of the four-hour opening ceremony he manages to go through like the history like one of the most comprehensive histories of a culture that's ever been depicted in terms of, you know, op- an opening ceremony to an event where people are jumping and pole vaulting and stuff. Like, he literally brings off a compelling treatment of the National Institutes of Health. He brings off, like, <laughs> the rich history of not just, like, music, but movies and literature. And yeah. he even has, Political like, movements. What's that? Political movements and social movements. Exactly. And English transition from a pastoral, like, from a pastoral environment to an industrial one. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but there was this uh, one moment near the beginning when they have various uh, soldiers of different uh, periods of England's history uh, marching along. And then uh, it doesn't last for long, but you see among them is our, so our, our people in the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band uh, <laughs> outfits uh, as part of that. Uh, yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, and, and like, and honest, I am a I am a huge fan of of like some like of how like you can take all parts of culture should be up, can be up for grabs like like you know that there sure there's a high culture and a low culture and a disreputable culture but you can go and grab elements from all these things as like a, a as a basis for the creative work that you do and that's something that Boyle has kind of been shown evident through his like films that we've been talking up to this point and definitely true that what he does out in the olympics like the olympics managed to have not only like god you know god save the queen the, the sex pistol song which was you know would literally was causing help cause riots when it first came out and then literally have the queen in a cameo of a james bond clip <laughs> so, right. so i mean both these things manage to inhabit the same space, which is such a, you know, such a great way of expressing England, how the way it can go and contains multitudes and the kind of sense, the wry sense of humor through such a juxtaposition, you know? There's a wonderful comedic bit uh, in the middle uh, with Rowan Atkinson uh, <laughs> dealing, do, do, doing some uh, oh, the, Mr. The Bean type stuff uh, on the keyboard, yeah. <laughs> right. and, the, and then they switch into a, a parody of Chariots of Fire. And right, right, like, which is so perfect you know <laughs> like the guy like to have that guy do that exact specific bit of pageantry you mm-hmm. know um andrew did it leave you with any impressions what you managed to see of the i i remember watching it at the time i remember being excited 
I don't really care much about the Olympics, but I remember, you know, a couple days before, oh, Danny Boyle directed the opening ceremony. Mm. So I was pretty excited to watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy epic. I mean, you mention all the stuff that happens, but in terms of visual flair, too, it's huge. Like, this is a huge, huge stadium, and he's got Industrial Revolution smokestacks, yeah. like, towering that stadium. Yeah. And color and dancing and fires. <laughs> and, I mean, it is insane. I have no idea how he... Yeah. Managed to put all that together. And, you know, because it's live, it's all like one take thing and everything has to integrate. Right. I can't imagine the logistics of that thing. And it's pulled off magically. Yes. Speeches uh, interspersed and. uh, Right. And Paul McCartney singing Hey Jude at the end. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. And like even even like there's lights that ring around the actual audience itself that live form letters and and do giant color changes. Yeah. Yeah, People think the Super Bowl halftime is spectacle. Nothing compared to. This. Yes, I was like I I picked up on this like a very second hand because I also had a little reluctance on the Olympics and I was just think opening ceremonies is like you get the parade of nations then fireworks and then if you're lucky more fireworks <laughs> but but th- but like just the scope just the ambition to go and literally say this is all parts of my home country my you know the the social the industrial the the like the history of it the, and the arts of it and just yeah. all try to condense it into four hours. He comes really damn close. It might, I mean, for all the films that he does, it, it might be up till this point, it might be his signature cinematic achievement. But, uh, okay, so I guess onwards, though, we can talk about his second greatest cinematic achievement, uh, um, <laughs> um, Steve Jobs. Well, 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 he, just briefly, I don't want yeah. to spend a lot of time on this, uh-huh. but he did do one other film in between. Oh, uh, okay. Which was uh, Trance. Uh-huh. Did it put you, did it put you in that state of mind? Yeah, yeah. This 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 might I think is probably his worst film. It, it looked like something that was done for the paycheck. Uh, it was some weird twisty thriller junk about hypnotism uh, with James McAvoy and Rosario Dawson. Mm-hmm. And basically, according to this film, hypnotism is a superpower that can do whatever the film needs it to do at any given time. Uh huh. It's heist magic. Exactly. <laughs> um. Uh. Like. Um. Yeah. It's. You know what? I didn't even come across. Honestly, I don't think it comes. It didn't come across as bad to me. And even though, like, every logical depiction about it, like, is I completely can't take issue with. It it is a dumb movie where, like, where yes, hypnosis can cause you to do things that no hypnosis has ever done. But honestly, something in my head I think really receives well to heist movies, Mm -hmm. to caper movies, to like, here's a scheme. How are people going to get out of that scheme? And I think it probably honestly helped millions with me as well, you know. Um, so I, so I did not hate the movie. I kind of enjoyed it to a point, even though I was treating it as a lark. But then I think Shallow Grave is kind of a lark as well. Yeah. So I, it's, I, I agree. I don't think it's, I think it's his worst film. I don't hate it, but it's really disappointing. It's not very good. And I'm all about, you know, big stupid heist movie with an amazing cast. Um, that it just, I, I was kind of bored, kind of rolling my eyes. I don't even remember most of it. I just didn't like it. Yeah. It's the only two things that, I mean, the only two things I'll, I'll briefly bring up upon it that I found interesting is that McAvoy kind of has a, a good side project for playing characters with mental problems now. Uh, yeah. between that and, um, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan film Split. And, uh, you know, honestly, Professor X is not all that right in the head either. Um, 
And, and then also, like, it end, the ending of Trance is on a note where somebody is admiring a painting <laughs> in their house, and which is worth a lot of money, but is worth absolutely no money if you don't sell it, and, and is the only reason you stole it in the first place. So why are you having it on your wall, you dumbass? <laughs> I'm sure hypnotism is somehow. The yeah, yes, hypnotism yeah. is always to blame. That's a good. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> so on, onward, uh, yes, onwards then to a, a a much much better film, a and kind of like another an interesting direction for you know for Mr. Boyle, like um uh, Steve Jobs. a phenomenally unique kind of structure of, of the film because it basically goes over the Steve Jobs and the various people in his life over the course of three separate product launches. The launch of the Macintosh, the launch of the next computer, and the launch of um, the, um, uh, the, new, uh, the newest Apple uh, the newest Apple iMac. And, and I think this takes over a span of like, I want to say like 10, 12 years, something right. like a- that. 85 mm-hmm. is the first launch. Uh-huh. 88 is the second. And then I think the next one's about, is 98. Okay. Yeah. So, so about, t- about a decade mm-hmm. then. Yeah. And, and along the way he meets up with the, he, he, um, he talks with, um, um, uh, John Scully, who was the CEO of Apple. He deals with Andy, with Andy Hersfeld, who was a, engineer on uh, many Apple products and Steve Wozniak, his partner in uh, founding Apple and in, in, in a, um, and in, uh, um, uh, um, a lady named Chris Ann and her daughter who, um, is, or in, according to Steve Jobs is not, uh, Steve Jobs' daughter. And now, um, like, uh, I say one of the, one of the really remarkable things again is this kind of structure of it that, that like it doesn't just show it isn't about that it's about just the product launches, but that it does not show the product launches at all. Right. It's about the preparation, and and I think that's a real I think that's a really really interesting choice that it literally ends in three different you know curtain raises. I mean and what I mean what do you guys like think about that and do you get some value out of well, that? We've discussed uh, previously kind of the. Uh, dangers of the biopic and how uh it, it can become very uh uh repetitive yes. uh between movies like you know ray and walk the line and whatnot this absolutely avoids all those tr- those traps with this structure uh because we're seeing him at these three moments and t- moments in time and they in in so many ways, reveal this character. I I think this is my favorite uh, Danny Boyle film, and and um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, I'm an Aaron Sorkin fan, and we've talked about how uh, Danny Boyle has a very close relationship with his writers, and uh, here I think is just a marriage made in heaven. Uh, Boyle's direction and Sorkin's writing work like. Uh, like poetry together. Uh, and then you have the perfect cast. Uh, my, uh, Fassbender um, gives so many levels uh, to Jobs. He doesn't try to make him uh, either too likable or too cartoony uh, villainy. There's so much. Uh, there's so much you could see kind of in between the lines. Kate Winslet was so impressive. I 
didn't notice her in the opening credits, I didn't even realize that was Kate Winslet uh, <laughs> for most of the film. Um, so she was so good, you'd like give her an Oscar for the reader in honor of like for. Oh, I take jobs. one for the reader right away and give it to her for this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, and and then just this Seth Rogen, who you usually don't think of as uh, giving uh, great performances, uh, stands out here as well. And and, and he's and working Jeff, his way through that right? crew. He's going to have Jonah Hill be to a star right. turn next. Jeff Daniels, much <laughs> more dependable. Um, yeah, so. You know, this is a movie that I think just works on all levels and, and more importantly, does so completely on its own terms in an in original way. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I think it's preposterous that this movie was not nominated for best best film and best screenplay because for all the reasons you guys kind of mentioned, it's it's just about a perfect film. Um I mentioned earlier, I think it was during A Life Less Ordinary, I said that movie sort of got away from Boyle and it was just kind of its own thing, it sort of felt like. Mm-hmm. I feel like this movie kind of is the same thing. It kind of takes on a life of its own, but all the better for it. Like, I think this is mostly the Sorkin show. Um there's a little bit of I, I feel like Boyle just stands in a corner and just says, point the camera over there and let it go. Mm. And the actors just pull off that script like magic. And um, th- I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some stuff in here, like the words on the wall and there, and there's some great scenes with some great lighting and interesting direction, but mostly it's on a stage. Like it's literally just on a stage and the cameras in the corner and the actors go with the script that they're given and it's outstanding and exhausting in the best possible way. Um, yeah. I and as to your question about like do you like the way that it was put forth in this way in just three three distinct acts be- before three big product launches I think that is a great way to do it um because you're dealing with he's got his company to deal with he's got his daughter to deal with um he's got his partner to deal with and like and something else like there's four main issues that are going on or maybe five and you get to all five of those in the three acts. Mm-hmm. Just one after the other. Rapid fire, rapid fire, the way Sorkin does it. Um, and it's fucking exhausting. Like, you get out of this movie and you're like, no wonder he caught the cancer. It's just, <laughs> just like, so much pressure all the time. And I'm just watching it. I can't even imagine what he's going through. So, uh, yeah, I this is in top three territory for me for Boyle films even though I I almost consider it not a Boyle film I feel like hmm. almost like Sorkin directed it in a yeah, way I'm, uh, I feel a little differently about it because I, I think there are I, I think Boyle had a particular way of using uh, not just Sorkin's dialogue but the, the structure that, that comes from uh, Sorkin's script and, and it's it's somewhat like he's able to do with the uh, game show in Slumdog Millionaire is use the inherent suspense of of something um, 
to inform the the interest in a larger story. So you know, we each of these uh, unveilings have potential uh, problems associated with it, and sometimes mm-hmm. they're problems only to Jobs, like whether uh, the computer will be able to speak and say good morning yeah. or not. Um, yeah, like the but, mm-hmm. sorry. I was no, I was I was completely uh, I'm completely with you on that because like for one thing there's a point like where one of the disputes is like where Wozniak is arguing with him where I'm where arguing with Jobs about like you need to credit the Apple II team okay and the and the thing that hits me is that on the page actually if you give it even a moment's thought it makes no sense whatsoever because no you don't have to credit it just the fact that you credit them on this or that product launch so what. So, you know, it does, so, so a couple of people have hurt feelings, which somehow I think Steve Jobs has hurt their feelings quite a bit a couple of times through the movie. However, when I'm watching it, I totally feel the tension. It's, it's not about that, right? It's about this conflict that's been brewing between Wozniak and Jobs mm-hmm. the whole time. And I don't think it's coming from the words. It's coming, I think, it's coming success, successfully from Danny Boyle's direction. And it leads me to go, like, I, I think you really hit it on that, that Aaron Sorkin is, and I think, guilty of basically he seems to me he's succumbs a lot of the times to being my characters are always going to say the most clever thing the most the most brilliant repost at any given moment and and they will do it all the time but on the first hand in jobs there are brilliant people who actually pretty much will say a lot of clever things a lot of the time but Boyle is the perfect director to add energy that's part I think Andrew that's kind of what makes it helps make it exhausting is that is that Boyle knows to keep it at a fee- at this kind of level of a of not a fever pitch but a simmer pitch, and that there there's a scene where uh, an early uh, um, uh, Microsoft image I'm sorry not Microsoft an early uh, Apple image of mm-hmm. uh, of a shark yes. is presented uh, uh, on on the screen and it's uh, it's overlaying a particularly tense uh, conflict. And it's little visual touches like that, yeah. that uh, and that's kind of a more obvious one. But but they're they're throughout the film these uh, kind of uh, strange angles and, uh, and 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 distorted points of view because we are looking at the world through uh, through 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 a main character who we're not told how to feel about. Yeah. Who, you know, on the on the one hand, you know, he, he kind of is in this uh, netherworld of, uh, on, you know, he he's dislikable uh, on one level, but he's also given a level of charisma that makes yeah. you understand why he's, you know, reached this uh, point beyond his uh, computer genius. Yeah, it, th- I think, yes, I think the sketching that Storkin did for for um, Steve Jobs which I think is based off like a, um, a nonfiction biography by Walter Walter Isaacson, but the sketching he manages to put in a two-hour movie, and and Fassbender's portrayal is masterful. Like you say about one thing, I actually think Steve Jobs has like five things going against him, but he has four things going for him as well. He's like there's there's so there's a, such a cauldron of different things about what what he's trying to do, what he's trying to achieve, what he's trying to deny about himself, about his friends and 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 associates that like. That, like, it's really interesting that, like, like, I think he's one of the most robust characters that came out that year, to, to be honest. You know, like, he's, Definitely. like, 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 in, they say the, the quality of a good character is that you put him in a situation and you know how they'll behave, right? Like, you can know the specific kind of behavior they'll do, right? Well, well, 
Jobs to me, his portray and Pathfinder's portrayal is a guy who may do four or five different things, but you understand his motivations for any of those actions, you know, taking place. I mean, so I total kudos for Sorkin and Boyle and Fastbender for bringing it up for for me. I mean, uh, Andrew, how'd you how'd you like uh, Fastbender's uh, performance? I think all of the performances are great, but yeah, Fastbender nails this. I mean, it's weird he, that he doesn't. At first thought, like, oh, he doesn't really look like Steve Jobs. But they put him together pretty well to look like him, even though I don't even really care, right, ultimately. Right. It's like the script. Did all of this stuff happen before all of these? Unvi- no, probably not. Yeah. In fact, almost certainly not. Um, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. I, I That's not why I go to the movies. I want to go to be entertained and see all this yeah. movie magic happening. And, um, yeah, Fassbender, the... He seems to somehow have good chemistry with everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so rare. Okay, he has great chemistry, him and Winslet. But he also, when he, it's him and Rogan, it's always him one-on-one, or almost always one-on-one. With that's a good Newcomer, point. Catherine Waterston, comes in. She's going to be a big star now. But at the time, I didn't really know who she was. They have great chemistry together. Um it's. I don't know how he manages to do that, but that's really well, interesting that you you bring up that he only only engages with people one at a time. A really yep. binary way of behaving for a guy working in computers, you know. But it's so it's so fast too. But that even though it's one at a time, it's always one after the other. Yeah. Um. Right away. Yeah. It so, it has. There's the yeah. constant of the Kate Winslet character. Right. Who, uh, yes. He. You know, in in the story of the film, just cannot function without. And I love that there's there's a sequence where she is gone for a while, and uh, his private spats go public in a big way. Yes. Uh, actually, I think that's the shark scene I was talking right. about earlier. Right, right, and right. And then the, and then finally, she's like, "What? I can't leave for a minute." Yeah. But 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 also, you know, Sorkin's uh, screenwriting is so. Um, is so much front front and center in all the projects he, he does, but not every actor can deliver it like the actors in this in this movie de- movie does. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lesser movie, I think, based on a, a Sorkin screenplay is uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Mm-hmm. Not a bad movie, but uh, except for the scenes, um, uh, j- just a, a few scenes the, the, uh, with. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, maybe? Thank you. Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of my favorite actors whose name somehow escaped me. (laughs) Uh, Except for uh, those scenes, the the dialogue doesn't catch fire like it does in everything uh, Fassbender says. Mm -hmm. Then even when you have him with uh, Jeff Daniels, who's been working with uh, Sorkin on television, and they get into this this wonderful pattern, and and whether it's realistic or not is is the last thing I care about, because it's just such a pleasure to listen to. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the setting, the setting like leads to two to, uh, two things that immediately come to mind for it for me. Like when I um, one is that like this is like the kind of the third like um, sort um, so the third Boyle film in a row, which is leads to idea of people in a confined space that have to go face like you know tests of their character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it kind of makes think maybe it's not just three movies. Maybe that kind of idea of like. Like a, a central location being a crucible towards like your development or your reckoning or or what have you, it might be something that informs his his earlier works to a, a different degree. But it seems like something which is becoming kind of a little bit of his thing, a sort of a a thematic thing of of Boyle. Maybe we maybe we're seeing a burgeoning outer at work. Who who knows? 
And the second thing that hits me, that hit me after thinking about um, the setting, the idea of three different launches, you meet the same people. It's like, you know what? I think we might see, we finally see a, a nice revision of um, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know, the, the, the people <laughs> yeah. who are on the journey are the same, but the settings are different. Right. And then they're all like, you know, you know how like that standard cliche about how you have the angel and the devil on your shoulder telling you what, right or wrong? Well, this is Jobs is such a self like involved figure on himself that he's literally being visited upon <laughs> by people who want to teach him the meaning of life over and over again, right? And in, e in each time, he gets closer and closer to a relationship with his daughter. That's so true. To the fact, to the point where he doesn't even recognize her as his daughter in the first segment. Yes. And then by the le by the end of it, you you do see uh, that there is some affection has been built uh, right. against all odds. Right. Certainly. And Boyle and I yeah. think Boyle does some really cool subtle touches to indicate that. Mm -hmm. Like for for one thing, Fassbender's performance, he's more and more open. Like he's very very high strung in the first third, it seems to me. But he's more and more open towards letting people do mistakes and and like and letting things slide a little bit. <laughs> a little bit in that. But then also, like um there it starts off incredibly stark. If, 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 if Fassbender is not, I'm sorry, if Steve Jobs is not talking to someone, then like there's no one else in existence, right? Everything's more empty. But as the movie goes on, more and more people are coming in, like the people are in the hallway when he meets up with his daughter at the end of the movie, right? And, and the people are, when the shark scene happens, there's people who are listening to him. Why are we seeing them? Because Jobs is now finally becoming more and more aware that there are other people mm -hmm. whose opinions are getting affected by the rants that he's doing. And that's, a, I mean, it's a super, it's a, it's, it's not very noticeable on the surface, but it's a deliberate way of building and grow and showing alongside Fassbender's performance that Steve Jobs is becoming a more well-rounded person. Yes. Less detached. That's right. All the time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even what he does with the, you know, even what he does with the computers, right? First, he needs to get, the computer slash surrogate child to say hello. <laughs> then th there's also a super, super minor touch, but I feel it's, super, uh, it's cool to point out. At the very, very end, which is one of the few scenes where he's outside and he's meeting up with his daughter and convinces her, hey, I can put music in your pocket, which is a kind of a nice, magical Charlie and the Chocolate Factory kind of thing to say, right? But then when you see her, when you see her car, in the strangely deserted parking lot, by the way. Um, but that car is a Volks is a bright blue Volkswagen, which looks incredibly similar to the round, bright blue iMac that he was promoting just a little bit earlier. <laughs> and at that point, that's a very cool little move on Boyle's point to show this kind of creation is something that, like, at least in Sorkin's view, it's a way of him trying to make a like make a surrogate relationship to someone he can't feel he can engage as a human being. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, for a couple of reasons, I like that closing scene with his daughter. Um, I mean, one, for the reasons you mentioned, like he's becoming less detached, becoming, he's empathizing, not on a totally human level yet, but, on right. you know, he is starting to empathize with people a little bit better. Um, and then with his daughter, it's through music. It always has been. Like, what are you listening to? Like, for them, music is their thing. Right. Um, number two, I'm kind of, I'm always a fan of, like, retro technology. I love going back to late 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. looking at computers, particularly video games and stuff. So I love going back to 
a quick nod to that first iPod that really mm-hmm. changed um, music consumerism. Yeah. Um, at the time, I, I don't know. I like that that little nod. Kind of like in Sunshine, where I I personally have an interest in astronomy, mm-hmm. so I like the Mercury crossing. Yeah. It doesn't really and it actually mean a lot back in the movie, to his but... first movie because. It's the, the the early iPod commercials were a big, colorful square field where silhouettes were dancing. That's and, right. And, yeah. and there's so many images in Shallow Grave where it's a whole field of color, like when the, the field of red when the, fir- when the first guy gets interrogated. It also connects to Shallow Grave uh, in its emphasis on friendship and the idea of uh, betrayal of friendship, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't something that's constant in Boyle films, but it, it, it definitely transfers from the first couple uh-huh. up through steve jobs yeah 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 it, and the prospect of money like leading things uh, the prospect of money leading things astray mm-hmm. like it like it go, uh, goes and does in scully's case mm-hmm. um so <laughs> like uh yeah it can it can be pretty interesting to see how things can you know can wrap around like that and um and like and it, that's another way i think that the script is a really great innovation because it kind of shows like like it's you guys may remember that whole controversy about the Mayan calendar. Like in 2012, it was supposed to be the end of the world, oh, yeah. but that's big. But the idea was is that the Mayans look at time as like a circle; it's endlessly repeating. Whereas, like we look at time as linear. It's hap- first this happens and then this happens. And Jobs, Steve Jobs, the movie manages to do both. Mm-hmm. It shows like progression, but then also progression through repetition. So it's a really cool way of like looking at like people's development, and it's actually kind of. I'm going a little too technical, but there's some there's a programming way, a methodology called iteration, where every different the revision you keep doing revisions and it improves each time. So right, and the fact that uh, one of his best movies is his most recent just uh, gives me optimism for well, what what else is uh, Mr. Boyle going to give us? Exactly, <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, it's not like he's one of those guys who you know started out the gate and then faded away. That's he, right. He has done some of his most creative work very recently, so who knows what's coming? Yes, bless. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, he's like, he's kind of like. Sometimes you have directors like Nolan or or, or Cameron who are like this total skyrocket, who like every film they want to just go top themselves. But I think. But I think like Boyle has had a really good mix, but it does seem to be building and his ambition and, and, and the scope of the kind of things he wants to explore seems to not just be increasing, but like I think in Jobs in his last couple of movies, I think his themes and the things that interest him seem to be bearing out and you might be able to. And so we have a chance to have a director who he's been a, an incredibly high quality craftsman and technician and very, very effective so far. But we might actually have a well, maybe we may have a budding uh, we may have a, a budding author at work, someone who pulls uh, someone and someone who there's a very good chance that his um uh, his um ultimate masterpiece is still in front of us, which is a really cool it's really awesome. cool thing to witness. <laughs> He's not that old. Yeah. Now I probably won't be Slumdog Billionaire, but <laughs> I it might be another film. <laughs> Train spotting too. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. I T two. <laughs> right or teeth right T2. exactly right if, if Renton is made of liquid metal I wouldn't be surprised but um uh but yes um like uh yeah and um uh yeah uh, Andrew like do you think of uh I mean do you think Boyle's got kind of a bright future or um or what would you like to see from him I don't know I love like as we've mentioned throughout like he's such a genre hopper um you know I wouldn't be surprised to get a big epic western out of him hmm. um I mean, I guess he's done sci-fi, he's done horror, thriller, drama, like, yeah, like a Western. 
um, or just keep surprising me. Like he's done a biopic even. Like he really is like Soderbergh is one of my favorite directors too. Uh-huh. Um, because he tackles all sorts of different stuff. Um, so, you know, who knows what he's going to tackle next shit. He might tackle like the 2016 election year. Uh, yeah. Um, in the United States, something I'm totally sick of. <laughs> but hey, it, you know, Danny Boyle might come up with something really great, or you know, something sweet and innocent, an animated film. Mm-hmm. Who knows? You know, like Wes Anderson did Fantastic Mr. Fox, and it's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. Ju- I guess if, if I ever were to ask anything of Boyle, is just keep surprising me. Yeah. I would, I would, for me personally, I guess I would like to, um, I'd like to have him do a collaboration with Alex Garland that doesn't <laughs> cause either one of them to slip up yet. You know, 28 days later, 28. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 that's, 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 that's true. That's, uh, that's true. Although I do think it's a lot more of what Boyle brings than what, what Garland does bring. And, and Garland, through his, through the books I've managed to read, and especially Ex Machina's screenplay, he is, right now, he is at, he, he is like at the top of his game for me. And I'd like to see, like Boyle, uh, Boyle post Steve Jobs and Alex Garland post X Machina. I want love to see their collaboration. Um, yeah, and and speaking of like what we'd like to see on Boyle, like one one thing I'd like to go and like kind of sum up for our for our discussion today is just for like for like if each of us could like just say like people know Boyle from Twenty Eight Days Later or Slumdog, but like if you could just go and suggest like what would you what would be like your kind of Boyle that you'd recommend to someone. That is like a little less known, and why why people should go and um and why people should go and like check that out, like like Brad, like what would what what would be such a film for you? Well, you know, I I'd have to stick with Steve Jobs on that because uh, as much as we all love it, and uh, it, it was not a big hit, it was not a film that I think uh, has reached kind of the cultural level of a. Uh, train spotting or 28 days later or slumdog millionaire and it is likely you know, because I, you know people might remember it because it's uh more recent but uh i, I as we you know as, as i'm recommending uh boil films to people i think that's the one they might be most surprised is better than uh they might have even thought it was okay cool and uh andrew um i'd probably go with 127 hours just because I, when you when you say you know films that are less prestigious, um, of the of the ones that I don't think everybody talks about, uh, that's probably the best one, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I I just think it's uh, I think a lot of people saw the title, saw the synopsis, and went, nah, probably not for me. Um, but you should definitely give it a chance. I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one that'll really uh, it'll you'll go wow. There's a lot more to this than I thought. It's really fun. Yeah, and and for me, I would I would I would recommend people take take a look at Sunshine. Sometimes I think like you know, like there are certain films a lot that are relying on twists where like where you where like the movie is a lot more than the twists. Like no yeah. Nolan's films and it, uh, the first two Shyamalan's. I think even once you know the twist, the movie still the movie still has value because the things. The movies are a lot more than about their plots or their surface stories. And I think Sunshine is just such a film. And I think it's about these kind of cosmic things that I, I really enjoy and, 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 and like to contemplate and think about. And, and I think there's, I'm really feel for like the main character's journey so much that I think as the more, as the movie fades, fades in and like the, and the little serial killer subplot 
becomes less and less important. And the imagery becomes more and more important. The feelings evoked by the imagery become more and more important. And I right. think the movie can get grander and grander in terms of its scope, uh, with, you know, with, and, and become, and, and I think there's a lot of value in looking at it. If, and once you can get past the slip up that they, that they do. So I would. And rewatch it with the idea that the, that slasher villain at the end is actually Killian Murphy's split personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. And it's, and it could be Murphy's spiritual journey and he's his like, and he's his like spiritual nemesis. Yeah. That yeah. might be a very good way of looking at it. So, so you cool. Might. So, hey, uh, thanks, uh, thank, uh, thanks guys for, um, uh, uh, for uh, uh, joining uh, for joining me for this explorer of, of Danny Boyle, like as you see, is as extensive body of work and, and a lot of interesting things worth talking about for the for those um, for you guys listening. I hope you uh, feel feel the same way. Um, Andrew, where can uh, where can people go and hear more of uh, more of your things, more of your yeah? Um, I'm videos. one of the co-hosts of the Cinecast at Row3.com. Um, uh, you'll also find me stumbling from film to film on letterbox.com. I'm Andrew underscore James okay. on there. I like to commentary and rate movies there too. Yes. So. Well, yeah. Letterbox D is, mag- letterbox D is magnificent. Um, yes. uh, yes. um, uh, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Brad, Brad, you and, uh, you and I are, um, uh, uh, both like we, you know, we're out on the, we're, we'll be out here next, uh, Next time, talking on the Directors uh, Club podcast, which you can find on uh, find on iTunes, YouTube, on our own on our uh, on our website. For me personally, you can find me on um, Letterbox D under uh, Cinemal two zero zero one. And Brad, is there any location that uh, people want to look for you? Uh, yes, you can find me on Letterbox D at uh, Brad S. Brad S. Mm-hmm. Uh, very well. Uh, all right, cool guys. Once again, thanks for the uh, thanks for the uh, enlightening conversation. I mean, um, uh, I I had a great time. I, I hope you guys listening uh, enjoyed it as well, and uh, hope to catch you next time. Thanks thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.